Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Trinity Rep. Celebrating 60 years with August Wilson's Fences, a Pulitzer Prize-winning drama returning to Trinity Rep's stage for the first time in 30 years. March 21st through April 28th. Tickets at trinityrep.com. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, live from our studio at the Boston Public Library, sex trafficking in Salem, the Trump administration's attack on access to contraception, holding Mount Ida accountable at 11. Attorney General Maura Healy is with us for an hour to take our questions and your calls on this month's edition of Ask the AG. At noon, Emily Rooney regales us with her famous list of fixations and fulminations. Then tech writer Andy Anotko is here to talk about Facebook finally banning white supremacists and how the Trump administration is charging that Facebook is discriminating against people in housing ads. How that will hold up. Didn't Donald Trump start his real estate career by getting sued for racial discrimination? But I digress. Callie Crossy is here for our weekly appreciation of Michelle Obama's memoir, Becoming, <laughs> now that she's sold nearly 10 million copies. P.S. Jim, she's also not running for president. So and we wrap things up with our Friday News quiz featuring the cast members of Spamilton. to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. It's Friday. We are broadcasting as we do every Friday from our WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Hey, Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. So on days the Attorney General joins us, we usually say at 11 o'clock she'll be here at noon, but today it is 11 o'clock and she is here. We are joined by Attorney General Maura Healy. She is here for Ask the Attorney General, taking our questions and yours. You can tweet the AG at BOS Public Radio, send her an email at bprwgbh.org or call her the preferred route, 877-301-8970. Attorney General, it's great to see you. Hey, great to be with you both. Good morning. Well, great Great to see you too, Attorney General. I know that there are many Americans and people in Massachusetts very concerned about what's going to happen to the Affordable Care Act. What are you doing in that regard? Well, you know, I I don't know how else to put it. The Trump administration is obsessed with taking away people's health care. That's what this is about, plain and simple. The Affordable Care Act is essentially now at this point healthcare in this country. It is the way that Americans are receiving healthcare. And unfortunately, the decision that the Trump administration made last week to uh, go after the ACA is really, really uh, uh, alarming. And we're going to do everything we can as states. We're already litigating this. We are already in court right now trying to stop this from happening. We filed suit two years ago on this and we'll continue to be in that litigation. But I also encourage people to speak up, as they did before. Remember a couple years ago when people took to town halls and other venues to really talk about what impact this would have on them and their families. So, you know, I think about the serious impacts this will have here in Massachusetts. We have two and a half million people in Massachusetts with pre-existing conditions. We have another 350,000 residents who receive coverage through Medicaid expansion. I was with my colleague from Kentucky last night. There's another... 1.8 million people in Kentucky who have received coverage now for the first time through the ACA. So this is a horrible uh, decision by the Trump administration. And I think you'll see this be the uh, central fight as we move into 2020. I'm sorry. I was just going to say one of the things that the the Republicans tried to do before was pass these other health care proposals. And a lot of them seem to be... uh, high deductibles, not that many benefits. Some people call it junk insurance. What does that mean? Well, they've done everything they can to undermine and destabilize our insurance markets. And I'll give you a good example. The Trump administration proposed that 
these uh, insurers be allowed to come into states like Massachusetts with strong laws about the kind of insurance people need to be provided here in the state and basically allow, would allow them to sell uh, these skimpy, skinny plans that basically people pay money for, but at the end of the day when they need the services, it turns out they're not really getting coverage for the stuff they need. We sued to stop that from happening, and just yesterday we won in court. And that's what we've had to do is every effort has been made to chip away, you know, through different means and regulations and rollbacks. We've had to go to court to stop that from happening, to stop them from dismantling the ACA, to stop them from cutting Medicaid funding off to our state, to stop them from allowing bad insurance plans to come into Massachusetts. So we're going to continue to be in court, but, I mean, this is something that, um, I think Americans are going to be absolutely outraged about once they learn what it is the Trump administration is trying to do. The ACA is not just the law of the land. It is the reality of the way health care is delivered right now in our, in our country. Our markets are now built around it. It is actually working, you know, for all the uh, belly aching about it over the last few years. And some of it justified because there were problems with it. It is, in fact, working, and more and more... I mean, we're talking about millions and millions of Americans who now are receiving health care that will be taken away by Donald Trump unless people stand up. You know, just one last thing since you touched on it. I wasn't going to bring it up because I brought it up every day this week and people are getting sick of it. But you mentioned the public's going to rise up. Who supports not being protected against pre You may love Donald Trump and think he's the second coming... Everybody's got somebody in their family with a pre-existing condition. Our medical ethicist, Art Kaplan, made the point the other day, pregnancy is a pre-existing condition. Who Describe the person to me in America other than Mick Mulvaney, the chief of staff, who thinks dumping that protection... Who, by the way, has terrific health care coverage. I bet she does that. He's got the Cadillac health care coverage. But can you understand the politics of this at all? Uh, on the Trump, on Trump's on part. On Trump, I think he just likes to throw a lot of stuff up, and he's had the benefit of being able to snow a lot of people, frankly, um, by making these blatant, uh, gross mischaracterizations. It's why we need to call this out. It's why people really need to start to speak up once again and tell their stories. Uh, because I, I think the fact of the matter is, Jim, there is no one who will benefit from this in this country. You know, and I think about the families and the parents that I've met here in Massachusetts. I think about the calls I get into my office starting about two years ago. Um, People literally scared to death because this is a life or death decision. This is a life or death decision for their families here in Massachusetts and around this country. And just because we're in Massachusetts and we have a law in place that ensures universal access to health care, don't think that is not going to be destabilized or undermined. And I know the goodwill of the legislature and the governor and all, you know, to come together to do what needs doing to protect our people and their health and access to health care. But at the end of the day, you can't have a situation where our health care market is completely turned over and destabilized if something like Trump's action boneheaded action is allowed to go through. You know, we're talking to Maura Healy. She's going to take your calls in about two minutes. I just have one thing before we get to the calls. I, I don't know what the relevance of this a court decision out of Connecticut. The Connecticut Supreme Court rules that the manufacturer of the Bushmaster AR-15, which was a semi-automatic used at Sandy Hook, can be sued and potentially held liable, uh, dismissed a motion to dismiss, denied a motion to dismiss. And obviously that was the weapon of choice in the uh, mass murder at Sandy Hook in 2012. That to me seems like a huge, 
huge decision, not just for the families at Sandy Hook, but potentially for people like you and others who have fought on these issues. Am I exaggerating the impact? I think think it is an important decision, and it's yet another example of the many cases. We've had strings of victories here when it comes to the gun lobby, and the gun lobby has been soundly uh, defeated in jurisdiction after jurisdiction. And so that was a, I think, great decision, an important decision, because for far too long, manufacturers have felt like they were untouchable. This now opens up a path to liability and accountability. We've also continued to have success here in Massachusetts. Just yesterday, our Supreme Judicial Court affirmed uh, a conviction under existing gun laws here in Massachusetts. As you know, my office has been in court on multiple challenges to our strong gun laws. We've won at every single turn. And the good news, too, uh, to my mind, is that for the first time this year, we have seen funding for the NRA go down. We have seen contributions to political candidates from the NRA go down. We've seen membership in the NRA go down. And I think it's just a a recognition that this is not where the country is at. I mean, we know from the polling this is not where Americans are at. Americans support sensible uh, gun reforms like background checks and the like, and, you know, the polling is just off the charts. It doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican. We need to continue to push. We need to continue to advocate here and advocate certainly in Washington. We're talking to Maura Healy. She's with us and with you until uh, noon. Our number is 877-301-8970. Our email is bpr at wgb. First on the line is Emily from Arlington. Hi, Emily. Hi, Emily. Hi, everyone. Hi. Um, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I'm, uh, I have a question about Wynn and the Encore Casino in Everett. Um, Attorney General Healy, I know you reserved your right to look into this um, until the Gaming Commission finished its investigation and came out with their rulings. Um, But I was wondering what it would take for you to get involved and how you would be able to impact any decision that the Gaming Commission makes to go forward with the Everett Casino. Can you explain what's going on, Attorney General, for those who don't know, uh, the, the, the suitability hearing and that sort of thing? Sure. So under the gaming law, our gaming commission is allowed to at any point review whether an applicant or somebody who's already received a license to operate a casino is, quote, suitable. And this is um, uh, now what is happening with respect to the Wynn Casino in Everett. So Wynn won that casino, um, and uh, it's already sort of, you know, nearly constructed. It's slated to open in June. But, of course, what happened a while back were all the allegations of sexual harassment by Steve Wynn that came to light. It raised serious questions about what Wynn executives and board members knew when, and did they hide the ball from our state and our gaming commission when they applied for the license. So that led to multiple investigations uh, by the gaming commission. The gaming commission has completed its investigation to determine whether or not when now Encore is, quote, suitable to operate here in Massachusetts. Reports done and delivered to uh, the commission. The commission will be holding a hearing next week. It should go for several days. And we are anxious to review that report, Emily. We're going to see what that report has to say. I'll be very focused on looking at what executives and board members knew when, what representations or misrepresentations they made to the Gaming Commission in applying for this license. And we'll reserve the right to take whatever action we think appropriate. But right now, we want to study the report. We want to see what's in the report. 
and we'll go from there. But I've said from the beginning, you know, we have one shot to get this right. We have one opportunity to get this right, and this sets the course, too, for how, you know, uh, for the rules of engagement going forward. And I think it's very, very important, and I expect that the Gaming Commission will review this and take this very seriously. They need to take this seriously. Emily, thank you for your call. Very quickly, before we move on, Attorney General, when you say we will reserve the right to review whatever the, the Gaming Commission decides here, what power do you have to review what the Gaming Commission... Let's assume they decide they are suitable. I mean, you said it was last month, whether it's built or near built should not be what drives this. Obviously, it's the merits of the, the thing you were describing just a minute ago. But if they come up with a determination that you consider to be inappropriate based on the evidence presented, what power do you have? Well, the Gaming Commission will have its power, but I guess as your Attorney General, I think most people would expect me to take issue and take on uh, any uh, effort to lie to the state when seeking the award of a contract. Are you worried? You know, I asked you this last month, and I still I really don't get it. This is not your fault. I just don't. I don't understand where the public ends up in this. My understanding of what the Gaming Commission instructed its staff to do was settle with Wynn's lawyers. This is about a month or so ago, so we can move ahead. And as part of the settlement with Wynn's lawyers, you can agree that some things are redacted from this that Wynn himself and his lawyers were objecting to. So if we don't know what we don't know, and I don't think you will know what you don't know. I don't think they're giving you the unredacted report, as far as I know. How do we know that their decision was the appropriate decision? Because maybe what we didn't get to see was what might have disqualified. Do you understand? I do. And let's just, for context, you know, explain to folks what happened. So um, the Gaming Commission here opens up its investigation into suitability after the allegations about Steve Wynn. What Steve Wynn then does, bully that he is, is sue the Gaming Commission and our investigators in a court in Nevada, okay, as a way to, uh, uh, to, to, um, to, 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 to disrupt proceedings here. Ultimately, what ended up happening in that legal uh, battle ended up being Steve Wynn's assertion that there were certain documents that the Gaming Commission had in its possession that should have been protected by attorney-client privilege. What happened is the Gaming Commission ended up settling and saying, you know what, Steve? We, we're prepared to deliver a full and thorough report. We won't, we won't uh, include certain documents. The question, Jim, will be next week when we see the report, are we able to tell whether those documents were just superfluous and unnecessary um, and, or, or not? Or do further questions need to be asked? So we'll see what happens next week. But I want, uh, I want you to know we take this seriously, and I, uh, and I know that the Gaming Commission needs to take this seriously, and there's a lot of work ahead in the coming weeks. Bernadette, you're in a car. You're on with the Attorney General of the Commonwealth. That would be Maura Healy. Thank you for calling. Hi. Um, I'm a big fan. <laughs> uh, my question is about these massage parlors that apparently Massachusetts has a great deal of, like more than other states. And I'm wondering what, if anything, you're doing about it to address this um, in light of the whole Robert Kraft thing, and et cetera. Do you have anything to say about that? Sure. Well, uh, thanks, for your, thanks for your question, Bernadette. Um, I'm not sure that Massachusetts has more massage parlors than other states, but we certainly have had a number. My office has investigated and prosecuted and taken down massage parlors that were operating as sex trafficking operations, and we continue to be aggressive about uh, uh, pursuing human trafficking here in the state. In fact, just yesterday, we charged a Beverly couple with human trafficking. They weren't operating out of a massage parlor, but 
uh, similar conduct happening out of a residence uh-huh. that they had, had rented. When it comes to massage parlors, this is a form of sex trafficking where it's happening, but it's also happening in motels and hotels and even apartments that get rented and then set up to be run as, as sex trafficking operations. One of the issues with massage parlors, though, Bernadette, is that we need legislation to close a loophole that's out there. Um, because there are certain massage parlors that if they open up as so-called body works operations, they're not subject to professional licensure and, ex- and inspection. And so we've proposed legislation to close that loophole so that trap traffickers can't use that lo- loophole to set up these kinds of operations. And we're, we're hoping that, um, that this uh, sees its way through uh, uh, very soon. You know, you, uh, for those who missed it, you uh, issued a statement about, well, let me go back. A couple of years ago, you were on our show immediately after you had uh, uh, announced with Robert Kraft a, a partnership, for lack of a better expression, on some really important issues. And in the last couple of weeks, since the charges were brought down there in Florida, you made another announcement about your partnership. Can you bring people up to speed on that, if you would, Attorney General, please? I sure will. And, you know, I just, as context... My office has a human trafficking division. We've charged over 50 individuals with human trafficking over the last few years, including an additional 29 Johns who were buying sex. Um, So this is active. We've got prosecutors and troopers and investigators engaged right now in ongoing enforcement actions. But, you know, one of the... You were referring to, um, Jim, this program, Game Change, which we, we started with the Patriots Foundation a few years ago. Uh, Patriots Foundation funded this effort to work with Northeastern Center for Sport and Society to get into schools with a really evidence-based, terrific curricula that is about teaching young people how to identify signs of violence, teen dating violence, stalking, domestic violence, and then empowering them with the social, emotional learning skills and competencies to take that on. It's been terrific Uh, We have trained thousands and thousands of students who really do this as part of a year-long program in high schools and middle schools around the state. What do the latest revelations mean for this uh, program? It's been a program that that has been really important and I think uh, of of great value. We're assessing that and we'll decide in the future uh, how we're going to uh, continue to to commit to efforts in schools to address issues of violence. Because you know where I come from on a lot of this stuff, whether it's on education around vaping and juuling or on substance use disorder and what we're doing with the opioid crisis. The more we can be in schools, teaching kids, empowering kids, helping them, giving them information um, and skills, all the better. Have you spoken to either Kraft or the Patriots Foundation since this uh, story broke from Florida? No, I haven't. Okay. I haven't. We're, talking, we're talking to Attorney General Maura Healy. Before we get back to the calls, Attorney General, as people may know that the Trump administration uh, has proposed dramatically expanding these offshore lease sales for, gold, uh, for oil and gas drilling, and this seismic testing for exploring for drilling was approved by the Trump administration. WGBH did a great story yesterday. I think it was yesterday, maybe the day before, where you could hear the sound of what this seismic testing sounds like underwater, and it's like, it's like it's some kind of bomb going off. And I know that you have, with other jo- uh, AGs, joined to uh, block this seismic testing. Tell people what it is and why you've taken this action. 
Well, you know, this is just another example where the Trump administration is doing something that is against science, is against our clean energy economy, is against addressing climate change, is against uh, the environment. And I was just down in New Bedford yesterday. Um, I was down there with Mayor Mitchell. He was delivering the, the State of the City address. And I think about New Bedford, which is the largest uh, uh, port right now in the country when it comes to seafood and seafood processing. They also have the opportunity right now to drive a huge economic engine for this state and this region when it comes to offshore wind. It is essential that we protect our natural resources and fight any effort to engage in really, really uh, wrong-headed decision to allow for that kind of seismic testing and drilling off of our shores. And so we're in court seeking to stop this from happening. And you've seen a bunch of states up and down the Atlantic actually come together and oppose the Trump administration's actions. So, so um, President Trump obviously is running for re-election in 2020. He may win, he may not win. But I'm just wondering, is this the kind of thing that could stay tied up in court for another six you know, years? Or I, no, I think, be? look, hey, we got that decision on the health insurance plans yesterday. I yeah. mean, that was a case that was filed not too long ago. So we are prepared, as you've seen time and time again, to get into court to stop bad things from happening, whether it was defending the DACA program, which we did successfully, stopping the EPA from rolling back any number of regulations, stopping Betsy DeVos as she wanted to continue to exploit students to the advantage of, of, of private loan servicing uh, entities, you know, we're going to be there in court as we need to be. Uh, family separation, you know, matters related to immigration, now matters related to health care. The census, you know, as you know, we're, we've challenged what Wilbur Ross and the administration is trying to do to mess with our census here in Massachusetts and elsewhere. Um, and so I think we're pretty nimble. We'll be in court as we need to, seeking immediate injunctive relief as necessary. But I think you see the legal process working. It's, it's working these cases yep. through. Can I just add one thing to this? I don't know if you saw, heard this, Attorney General. You, guys, you and Marjorie were talking about the environmental impact of this, which to me is, is clear that as you say. It's the whales. But beyond the whales, that, Jim. the whales. Yeah. There's this guy, Joe Cunningham, who's a congressman. I'm embarrassed to say I don't know what state he's from. During a hearing on this a couple of weeks ago, he, without any it noticed anybody, blasts an air horn. And everybody's heard an air horn. It's like mm. piercingly mm. loud. And everybody's shocked. And he, he says, and I, uh, I checked this out on the day I read it, and it is confirmed as true, the actual sound of the this seismic thing that you two were talking about is 16,000 times louder than an air horn is. And imagine well, what they're it talking does. About it. We're killing the whales, killing the dolphins, killing the other marine life around it. it uh, and their or, birth cycles. Or and, being so close it would actually kill them from the, the impact of it. Of so. course, it's... It's, a, it's really staggering that, you know, this is where we are. And the other thing I want folks to know is this is about protecting the environment and natural resources and certainly indefensible mammals that are out there in our oceans um, that really provide an economic lifeblood, too, to this region. But it's also about our clean energy economy because seismic testing is just the groundwork for oil exploration, oil and gas exploration offshore. <laughs> it is so stupid. You know, we are in a situation here in Massachusetts where we have 100,000 clean energy jobs, and that number is going to grow with wind and hydro coming online. That's more jobs than total coal jobs in the entire country. So just like we had to sue when the Trump administration wanted us as taxpayers to foot the bill for coal 
at the expense of a renewables portfolio, we're going to sue here to stop them from allowing what is the precursor to oil and gas exploration because that's actually an economic imperative for our region as well. Let's go to Molly in West Newbury. You're on with the Attorney General, Maura Healy. Molly, thank you very much for calling. Hi. Sure. Hi. I'm a friend of your godmother, Mary, and she is proud of you every day, as we are as well. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you. (laughs) Um, Well, I'm questioning what's going on with the opioid crisis with the Sackler family in Purdue and Mm -hmm. what's on the horizon now, because it sounds like there have been a few lawsuits that have been coming to fruition in other states, but now there's been some uh, family members that have been addressed. Yeah, Molly, thank you uh, for the the question. So we have been very aggressive as an office in suing Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family. The Sackler family is a privately held corporation controlled and operated by members of the Sackler family. And a few months ago, we uh, were able to basically have unsealed this 275-page complaint that we brought against Purdue and the Sacklers. All this detail that we obtained directly from emails and memos and the like from Purdue and from the Sacklers that really told the story of their greed and this company's willingness to put profits ahead of people. We know the tale of what happened here. I mean, even after Purdue settled back in 2007, paid a $600 million fine, two executives pled guilty, they went on to engage in 150,000 visits to doctor's offices here in Massachusetts. 150,000. I mean, multiple times a day. And in some offices, they were visiting multiple times a week. And the whole charge, the whole goal, as directed directly by members of the Sackler family, was to try to get as many people on as high a dose of Purdue opioid products as possible for as long as possible. They even, in 2014, contemplated getting into the business of opioid treatment, of opioid addiction treatment. So they were going to make money on both ends of this. Um, I am heartened today, my colleague in the state of New Jersey, excuse me, in New York, uh, following some of the work that we had done here in Massachusetts, also brought suit against the Sackler family today, brought, amended the complaint. I think you'll continue to see um, aggressive action by our office, not limited just to Purdue, but we also have ongoing investigations against the five other opioid manufacturers and distributors. But I just want to tell you, Molly, and I want to tell every family here in Massachusetts that we plan to be as aggressive as possible. I know how important it is that the story be told and that there be accountability here and that there be transparency here so that this never, ever happens again. Before we take a break here, uh, I'm sure you saw the story that uh, three museums, one in uh, New York, the Guggenheim, which obviously is pretty prominent, have said they're not taking any more Sackler uh, donations. And so we see their names on buildings at your alma mater, yeah. Harvard and elsewhere. Where are you on the issue of uh, one should uh, foundation should private entities, charities, nonprofits take money, and two should we continue to have their names on buildings? Here, I think it was Joe Curtitoni, I believe, said the mayor of Somerville that he supported names coming off things that were in Somerville. Where are you on that? You know. I- Ultimately, I think it's up to each institution. I am not surprised that institutions are actively talking about this, that you've seen institutions like some of the museums reject Sackler money. I think you'll see more and more of that. And I think it's important for people to understand the only reason that the Sacklers are able to give money to colleges and universities, to museums, to medical institutions is because they sucked billions and billions and billions of dollars 
out of their company, Purdue Pharma, that they only came by way of uh, exploitation of people. I mean, that is what we fundamentally uncovered in our investigation. And so, you know, some have, have uh, termed it blood money. Um, I, I'll leave it to others to characterize, but that's, in fact, what's going on. As a matter of charity's law, you know, it's ultimately up to each institution to decide what's right alum. for it. But you're a Harvard alum. What would you like to see your uh, college? Weren't you the college day whatever the other day, uh, the other year? <laughs> the Marshall. The Marshall. I mean, serious. It's, I mean, obviously, you're Were an you alum. Were the Marshall? What should Harvard do? Yeah, she was. Wow. What, what should Harvard do? I think that they should engage in a full discussion with the community and with alumni and make a decision. And you're an alum. What would you tell them they should do? You well, know, um... You know, I, I personally, I guess, it would not want to have my name associated with, um, with a family or with entities that cause such harm. Now, look, Jim, I got an ongoing case, okay? So I'm not going to try my case here in the media. Mm-hmm. I'll leave it at that. But, you know, I think it raises serious, um, serious questions and serious concerns. And I think you'll continue to see pressure and heat on institutions to uh, to reject money and you know whether it means names coming off walls obviously as a legal matter and you know as a lawyer Jim there are contractual issues with all that that I'll leave for others to sort out <laughs> um, but I, I think what's important here is that the story has come to light the story about how people made money at the expense of others and through the exploitation of others and we know the devastation and the harm to so many families and communities here and it's something that I talk about with my colleagues from other states, and we're just going to continue to do everything we can to be aggressive in our investigation, to fight for better access to treatment and services, and to do the education, especially in our schools. I'm active through my project here curricula in our middle schools here in the state. We've made available um, information and, and, and a curricula that will help kids make better decisions. Um, so we've got to continue to come at this from, from all angles. We're talking with Attorney General Maura Healy. She's taking your calls as well at 877-301-8970. We're going to get to as many as your calls and emails as we can. She's with us till the top of the hour. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Boston. Whoops. Yo, hello again. <laughs> Let's try that again, Jim. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Marjorie Egan. More importantly, she is Attorney General Maura Healy. She is with us for another half hour with us and you to take calls, questions, etc. 877-301-8970. If you want to talk to Attorney General Healy, you can tweet her at BOS Public Radio or send her an email to bprwgbh.org. Uh, Attorney General, uh, you were just down at the border, I understand? I was. What did um, you see? Well, we, I, I went with a group of other AGs to do a border crossing, and we went with an organization that we've joined with in suing the Trump administration to end the family separation policy on the border. And, um, you know, what I saw was incredibly distressing. You know, basically right now, our government, and we're not, we're, we're talking about people who are going, approaching the border in an effort to 
exercise what is their legal right, which is to ask our country to consider them, just to consider them, not to grant them, but to consider them for asylum. And these are people who are fleeing serious domestic violence, gang violence, all sorts of issues in their countries through Central and South America. And so the Trump administration has basically stopped uh, letting people through to even petition our government, which is their legal right to ask for asylum. We met with the lawyers from El Torlado, and, and this, is the, this is the organization that is doing tremendous work on the border, uh, and American, American lawyers who are providing services to, to those on the border who are seeking asylum. But it is heartbreaking because uh, they've completely shut down any effort to apply for asylum. People are stacking up in shelters. There is tremendous crime. Uh, violence, uh, human trafficking. You can imagine that now this area with a population that's growing, we received reports of any number of people being disappeared. So it's a humanitarian crisis on the border. My colleagues and I, met, I was talking to Tish James, the AG in New York, about how we can organize to get more lawyers down there or bring more humanitarian aid and show the public what's really going on. Because what's coming out from uh, uh, Department of Homeland Security and representations by our U.S. government about what's happening on the border is completely at odds with what you're seeing down there. And uh, it was really, really heartbreaking. I've said before that, you know, one of mo my most difficult weeks in the office as Attorney General was when uh, we were filling out the declarations, where folks were in filling out declarations and affidavits for our case to try to end family separation at the border and you know, I met a woman who had fled Guatemala with her then seven-year-old daughter and was picked up by ICE agents in Texas. She was separated from her daughter, and she was paroled here to Chelsea while her daughter stayed behind in a, in a facility cold and alone, and by the way, turned eight years old cold and alone. We filed suit, and, you know, I remember telling her that day that, as she cried in my arms, that we're your government, too. And I think that's what's really important for people to remember, that the Constitution begins with the words, we the people, not I the president. We are your government, too. And you have seen state AGs uh, come together all over this country on any number of issues to assert constitutional principles, to stand up for the rule of law. That's what we're doing you know, on this particular matter. And having been to the border and having seen firsthand what's happening there, it left me all the more committed to taking action um, uh, that we need to take. And one of the great things, of course, is I'm down there, and this woman comes running up to me, and she's from Greenfield, Massachusetts. <laughs> and she had chosen to take a few weeks to go and volunteer, um, not as a lawyer, but uh, as somebody who was going to help and provide services and, and deliver aid. And I just thought, good for Massachusetts. So there are heartening stories through, through all of this, but it's just uh, it's ter it's shameful what's happening, and that's why my office will continue to be really aggressive on this. You know, I'm just sorry. one last quick thing. When you saw people in these areas, are they in tents? Are they just sleeping? What, what, what is the physical uh, situation that they're in? Yeah, many are in tents um, or sort of corrugated metal you know, uh, shelters. Um, many are just outside um, uh, walking around or in, in little... Uh, groups, and it's really, uh, it's really terrible. There are a number of children. There are a number of young people. I met a young man who's 18 um, who, um, you know, was just so scared about what was going to happen to him because he can't be sent back to his country because he's afraid he's going to be killed. I mean, that's why he fled in the first instance. So it's, uh, it's, it's really a terrible, terrible thing, and it left 
uh, many of us absolutely affirmed that we were doing the right thing in taking the Trump administration to court on this and that we also need to do more to raise awareness about what's really going on down there because everything coming out of Washington on this is simply a lie. Andrew in Beacon Hill, you're on with the Attorney General, Maura Healy. Thank you for calling, Andrew. Hi. Sure. So as a fellow Newsol alum, go Huskies, you are a <laughs> keynote speaker at graduation in 2015. So thank you. That's right. All right. Um, Great. <laughs> listen, so, so you're doing incredibly important things vis-a-vis our environment, the opioid crisis, uh, et cetera. But, you know, on, on a bit of a lighter uh, and exciting note, Pete Buttigieg, uh, the mayor from South Bend, Indiana, he appears to be the, the first viable, progressive, openly gay candidate for president in the new era. Um, last I saw, he's, he's catapulted in the Iowa polling from virtually last to third, uh, just behind Joe Biden and, and Senator Bernie Sanders. As an openly gay, extremely popular official yourself, uh, you know, that may also have higher political ambitions, what's your take on Mayor Pete? I think, uh, I think Mayor Pete is doing great. I came to know him a few years ago when he was running to lead the DNC. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he's great. I think that it's really great that we have a primary with a lot of different voices, a lot of people running, a lot of people competing. I think it'll be better for the Democratic Party. Um, and I look forward to, to seeing, I think that we'll see even more people get into to the race. But, you know, I, I'm not going to take a position on anybody right now. Um, one thing that I like about uh, somebody like Pete is that he does, he does represent the future. And he's also out of the Midwest. Um, and I remember talking to him, and, and one of the things he talked about was the extent to which Republicans have co-opted things like faith, family, freedom, the flag, very effectively, when yeah. those are as much principles of the Democratic Party, but something that somehow you know, um, hasn't, hasn't come through as strongly. And I just think you know, that was just an example of uh, an, I thought a pretty insightful perspective he, he injected. I assume you're calling him Pete because he can't pronounce his last name like everybody That's a else. Tough one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. You know, uh, 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 Attorney General, we had the governor on. He speaks we, Norwegian, I guess. He does. Yeah. That was pretty yeah. incredible, I mean, too. Mm-hmm. He speaks a lot of languages, apparently. We had the governor on a couple of weeks ago, and I think we tried to ask him a question that we totally blew, so we'll try it with you. He is... Uh, Urging people that doesn't be- seem very fair. <laughs> he is. Uh, I don't know if we're going to do any better with you, though, because it's a little complex. He's urging uh, legislators to pass a bill that would suspend the license of any driver stopped by police who refuses a drug test. This is around the marijuana thing. And the thing I don't quite understand is there is no breath or blood test that can mention that can accurately measure impairment from drugs. So how can somebody be penalized? I know it's not law yet. And I guess I want your position on this. How can somebody be penalized for refusing to take a test that doesn't accurately measure that which it's supposed to measure? Do you, do you know what I'm I trying to say? Look, there's a commission that was established to deal with this issue of impaired driving in the, uh, in the wake of legalization of marijuana. Mm. And, you know, there are some ways to test, but you're right, Jim, there hasn't been sort of a... Uh, a lab test that uh, there's agreement upon just yet. I think that it's important that we develop a way to test accurately for this. And I get the concept of treating this the same way you treat drunk driving, which is if you refuse the breathalyzer, you automatically lose your license for six months. So I get that. I think it's important, though, that we have um, the right testing in place. Uh, I'm sorry. uh, I was going to do a phone call. Sure. Andrea in Weymouth. Hi, Andrea. Hi. Um, Thanks for taking my call. Thanks and for I'm calling. Very much uh, grateful for.
for A.G. Healy's work. You give me, you give me life. <laughs> wow. Um, I have a, I know really, like when I get bummed about stuff, I hear all this stuff and it's it just, it's wonderful uh, that we're fighting back and that this is our government too. It makes me feel better. Um, I have a question I'll read real quickly and I can take the answer off the air. Massachusetts leadership is aware that the state will not make 2020's greenhouse gas emission reduction goals as laid out in the, 20, in the 2008 Global Warming Solutions Act with the strong potential for five new gas infrastructure projects being built in Massachusetts. The GWSA goals are further imperiled. Given the attitude regarding fossil fuel use in the federal government right now, how can we ensure the state enforcement, especially regarding permitting agencies, as they are required to consider reasonably foreseeable climate change impacts, including additional greenhouse gas emissions and effects, such as predicted sea level rise. That's it. Thanks, okay. Andrea. Hey, thank Andrea, you. thank you, and thank you for the call. Um, this is imperative. It's a, it, I've talked about this as a moral imperative to address climate change. It's also an economic imperative. It's why you've seen uh, the state and cities take action with respect to sustainability and that important discussion. So I think you know, we've got to do everything we can, Andrea, to meet our goals here that we've set in Massachusetts. Um, and my office will continue to be a strong advocate for making sure that we are out there. You may remember, I mean, you know, a year ago when we secured all those funds from VW, we actually applied millions and millions of dollars towards electric vehicles here and infrastructure here in the state and the development of that. We're going to continue to uh, support and find ways to support renewables and grow that portfolio. Right now, my office has to look at the wind procurements and soon the hydro procurements. And, you know, again, as we talked about earlier, we will be there to take action and fight moves by this administration to take us back to a coal and fossil fuel dependent um, energy economy here. It just it isn't going to work for our state. It's the wrong road. And I think we need to make sure that we are doing everything we can, as Massachusetts has done. I mean, remember, Andrea, we were the state that sued George Bush's EPA to get them to do their job and regulate greenhouse gases. We won that case of the Riley administration in the United States Supreme Court. So we have always led in this space. And I know from talking to colleagues in other states that there are any number of us who are joined who recognize that we have to be strong as states in the absence of federal government leadership. You know, Attorney General, we had the governor on, too, talking about this, uh, th this issue of the Weymouth compressor. Uh, Andrea, uh, um, this is part of an organized group that's very, very upset sure. about yep. what's going on there. And she listed in this email a uh, new gas project proposed from Massachusetts in addition to the Weymouth, uh, some Tennessee gas pipeline, an Agawam compressor. I don't even know about that. Uh, Columbia Gas, Reliability Plan of Springfield, Lowell Modernization, Charlton LNG Facility, Liberty Energy Trust. We asked the governor specifically about the Weymouth uh, situation because neighbors, we get pummeled with uh, emails and calls about this every time he's on. They're very, very upset about this Weymouth compressor. The governor's uh, argument is that his hands are tied because the federal government uh, is mostly in charge of, of what can be done and can't be done. Is he right? Well, ultimately, his office issued a permits. permits for this to go forward, saying that it met the legal requirements. Um, we'll see whether or not that that's tested in in court. But um, might you I know contest it in court? Well, we'll have to evaluate. You know, uh, we also represent the agencies who mm -hmm. make those determinations. So, you know, we'll, we'll see. I do um, I do appreciate the concern out there. As folks may remember, it was my office that sued to make sure that us as electric ratepayers 
weren't going to foot the bill for utilities that wanted to come in and build new gas pipelines here in the state. We won on that, by the way. And it was interesting because there was all this talk about pipelines, pipelines, pipelines. And as soon as it became clear that us, you know, residents and commercial <laughs> interests, rate payers who get the bills every month, weren't going to be footing the bill for that investment. Enthusiasm declined. The, the pipeline companies... <laughs> Walked away. And, of course, in the state of New York right now, there really hasn't been – they're not allowing pipelines through. So as a practical matter, um, there really hasn't been a move here since in, in Massachusetts for more pipelines. You know, Attorney General, I'm just looking at the email. I'm trying to compress what are some of the more commonly asked things. So let me ask you some quick questions with some uh, quick answers. You mentioned Riley, one of your predecessors. Martha Coakley issued a report yesterday, one of your, your predecessor, your former boss, on the Cambridge Health Alliance, no individual uh, response liability, she said, but the decisions around Laura Levis's death, who died of an asthma attack, well, she died six days later, but collapsed and outside the emergency room door that was unmarked, at, or at least unmarked clearly, Somerville Hospital decreased morale, promoted divisiveness, the fact they didn't tell the family the truth until uh, Peter DeMarco, her husband, wrote. What's your, one, what's your reaction, and two, is there a monitoring or some other role for the Attorney General's office in the wake of this uh, uh, report commissioned by CA, Cambridge Health Alliance and written by uh, uh, Martha Coakley and Dean Richland? Yeah. I have not read the report. Obviously, a, a terribly tragic situation, and I hope that uh, this leads to the kind of policy changes and reforms in these institutions that need to happen. Um, you know, I, I, I'll tell you, we, we recently took action against a number of nursing homes. I know that, yeah. um, And this was a, an important effort on our part because we basically went statewide and we were uh, going after nursing homes from Longmeadow to Brockton to Everett and Wakefield to Westboro, uh, investigating and ultimately reaching settlement agreements with different nursing homes that related to the adequacy of the care that were, they were providing patients. We had reports of patients falling and getting injured, one woman even dying ultimately from a brain, a brain bleed. Um, these were facilities that our investigation revealed had systemic failures, and I'm really glad to uh, be in this space. It's the first time that the Attorney General's office has been in this space in a while, but I know the concern of so many people out there as they think about where they're going to move their aging parents. And they need to be secure in knowing that in these facilities, these patients will be cared for, that they have rights, and that for the few, and they're not all bad actors. I don't mean to suggest uh, that we paint this industry with, with, with a broad brush, but where there are bad actors and inadequate policies um, and practices taking place, we're going to take action and hold you accountable. And in fact, Synergy, which has been the subject of a lot of reporting by the Boston Globe, mm -hmm. as a result of our action investigation and settlement agreement, will not be uh, doing business here in Massachusetts for the next seven years. So in, that, in, that light, in light of that, there might be a role in the wake of the Coakley report on CHA? Or for the Attorney uh, General, you don't know? I, I don't think so, Jim. I'll look at the report, okay. but I, I think that the important work and analysis was done in terms of the internal investigation and review there. I'm not sure, to be honest with you, what position the family is taking right now, uh -huh. but a, a, a tragic situation and one you hope, well, you, you won't see again. Do you trust the, uh, the Attorney General bar su uh, summary of the... Uh of, you have a smile on your face of the uh, Mueller report, which we have yes to, yet to see. I mean, no. I think we need to see the full report. You know, 
Um, I love all these people commenting, though, on a report that nobody's actually seen or read. <laughs> so, I mean, not to knock the media or punditry, but give me a break. I mean, we spent, like, so much oxygen consumed by this and commentary when nobody's actually seen the report. We need to push for the release of the full report and allow, you know, decisions to be made from there. I expect to see continued aggressive uh, investigation by the House. I think that's really, really important. And... Um, you know, I, d I don't expect much from AG Barr or the Department of Justice on this. And third and final thing on the email, what's your reaction to uh, the latest in the Jussie Smollett case? Do you know Kim Fox, by the way? The, uh, I don't. Okay. I don't. I just, know, I just know of her. You know, I haven't been following it particularly closely. Okay. It seems like it's kind of a mess, to be frank. It's definitely a mess. There's no question yeah. about that. Let's go to Peter in Boston. Hi, Peter. Hello, Peter. Yes, I... Uh Listen, a quick question, and I know you've done some great work on the, uh, the border statistics that uh, Trump comes out with ICE and how uh, they're, they're misleading. My question is, like, about 600,000 have been in the last two years uh, have crossed the border, and they're talking, Trump's saying another, be close to a million, and just they claim asylum, and they say, how many people are you aware uh, for this catch and release have actually been stopped here and have been actually deported? Do you, are you aware of that, of how, how can we refute Trump's... Uh, uh, statistics aren't correct. Well, um, they aren't correct. Um, they're just making stuff up, Peter. I mean, when I was there last week, what we saw um, is they don't even have a system for people being able to cross right now or apply for asylum. They have a system, but you know who runs the system? The poor people who are actually seeking asylum. They're left to operate under a, this tent with like a card table, and they have a handwritten list that they write names in every day. And you know what our government does? Every day, for the hundreds who are there, thousands who've come, they're allowing 30 to 40 people then the opportunity to move forward into a, a detention place to apply for asylum. And that's, that's it. So his numbers are, um, not surprisingly, completely inaccurate and, and really a disservice to the American public, but I think that's why investigative journalism and reporting and shining a spotlight on what's happening at the border becomes really important because a lot of, um, a lot of people are, 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 are listening to what's coming out of the administration, and it's just totally, totally inaccurate. Alan in the car. Thank you, Peter, for your call. Alan in the car, you're on with the Attorney General. Quickly, if you can, please. Hi, Jim. Thank you very much. Sure. Uh, my question actually has to do with uh, consumer protection and the Massachusetts solar program. Sure. Um, so the issue I'm having with my solar installer is that they verbally notified me last summer when the system first turned on that my solar system, they would either enroll for me or I would automatically enroll in the SRAC 2 program. Um, however, now the SRAC 2 program has ended, they actually sent me a disclosure for SMART that want me to sign up. Um, so I'm wondering if there's any help I can get from the consumer protection law um, to argue with them for that. No, absolutely, Al. We can take a look at that for you. Just stay on the line, and we'll make sure we get your number. And for the listening audience, remember, if you want to reach us with any consumer question or complaint, call us at 617-727-8400. You can also email us at 
AGO at mass.gov, M-A-S-S.gov. I'm smiling because the last time I only knew my own personal address, <laughs> email address, which I did give <laughs> out. Give right. that out. That's fine. Right. Um, That's right. But our actual office, you know, is, is AGO at mass.gov. Okay, so in light of the fact that I have personal experience for you spinning a basketball on your finger for minutes at a time without even blinking, do you do brackets for the uh, NCAAs, men's or women's or both? I do. I didn't this year. You didn't? I didn't. And why would that be? I just, you know, there's just too much other stuff going on. Really? Really. Who's going to win both, men's and women's? Um, I don't know. I'm, um, I, I don't know. That's what's so great about the tournament. I always, no matter what, at this point, I don't have brackets. It's, it's like you're always rooting for the underdog. So we're looking forward to more games starting tonight. Okay. So who's the underdog? Oh, my God. Whoever it is. Oh, okay. Whoever it is. I'm not underdog. paying that much attention. <laughs> I think that's pretty clear. <laughs> to the tournament. Although I do love the name March Madness. I love everybody gets so excited about it. It's kind of passed me by somehow. Attorney General Moore somehow. Healy, thank, thank you very much. It's good much. to see you, Attorney General. Great to be with you both. So Attorney General Have Moore Healy joins us every month to take our calls and yours. And I'm sorry we didn't get to all the calls and all the emails, but we tried the best we could. Coming up, Emily Rooney's here to regale us with her famous list of obsessions and observations. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. We are live from our WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Boston Public Radio, live from our studio at the Boston Public Library. Market Basket said the stores are ghost-free. It's a headline that's gone viral. In a few minutes, our clickbait analyst, Emily Rooney, joins us to talk about why stories like these gain traction. We'll also get her take on Bob Kraft's attempt to deep-six the video evidence used in the prostitution sting. Then tech writer Andy Anotko joins us to talk about our commander in tweets. Twitter is trying to figure out how to deal with the problem of tweets that violate their community guidelines but are posted by a political figure like the President of the United States. Stacey Abrams says thanks but no thanks to Joe Biden. We'll talk to Callie Crossley about this. Was it an exploitative move on Biden's part? Will his white male baggage from this to Anita Hill be his 2020 problem? From there, it's our Friday News Quiz featuring two cast members from Spamilton, the American parody. That's next on Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. The 
Eastern Crowdy. I am Marjorie Egan. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. We are broadcasting live, as we do every Friday, from the WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Hello again, Jim. Hello again, Marjorie. And joining us for her famous list of fixations, <laughs> I mean, really famous really, list no. <laughs> of fixations and fulminations and more is Emily Rooney, host of the Beat the Press, which you can catch every Friday night at 7 o'clock. Hello, hey, I'm Marjorie Emily Rooney. Jim. Hello, hello. Well, the poor education secretary, Betsy DeVos, <laughs> just seems to careen from one disaster to another. Uh, then she, she was in a rather messy situation this week with uh, her efforts to defund the Special Olympics. Okay, so I was really curious about this. And I think the media has done nobody any favors in this, although she's got a tin here. She wasn't really defunding the Olympics. The Olympics are privately funded. 99.9% of the money comes from you know, donations, and it's, I don't know, mil- I don't even know what their budget is. It's huge. It's like it's like 150, I yeah. think. It is so, 99%, so this but is, it's a this 10 is 17, or This is $17 million. million dollars, and it's not the Special Olympics. It's what they School. do inside the schools. Which makes it worse. No, that- I understand. I understand. But it's not, we, we were shorthanding it, you know. To I agree the, special, the Special Olympics is an event that comes up every two years in coincidence with the summer of the Winter Olympics. Mm-hmm. This is not the first time this has come up. Three years in a row. And it's, it's a little bit like public television. It's, it's one of those, <laughs> right? You know, that somebody gets it in their craw. Ah, oh, you know, they got enough money. They can do this on their own. And that's the argument that comes up every year with public television. This is worse because it's children. This, it's it's yeah. children who have a, a, a wide range of varying disabilities and all that. But I, I am suspicious about this, Jim, because I feel like she was doing the bidding not just but of the president, and that she can do this all on her own. Of course this had not. Been, so, you know, he comes out, and I, I guarantee you, he didn't even know what part of Special Olympics was being defunded. He had no idea. Well, can I say about 40 things about this, if I may? <laughs> let, let me start with, I can't pronounce this guy's name, is a Democratic congressman, Mark P-O-C-A-N from Wisconsin. Here's part of the grilling from Republicans and Democrats. DeVos got over two full days about this $17.5 million cut for school programs of the Special Olympics. Here it is. Do you know how many kids um, are going to be affected by that cut, Madam Secretary? Um, Mr. Pocan, uh, let okay. me just say again, we had, ma- we had to make some okay. difficult decisions with this budget. Again, this is a question of how many kids, not about the I budget. I don't know the number okay. of kids. It's 272,000 kids. That's I, all. I'll answer it for you. That's okay. No problem. It's 272,000 kids that are affected. Is an awesome organization, one that is well supported by the philanthropic sector as well. Sure. Okay, so about a few things on the list. One, her contention is I support the Special Olympics. The issue is should government support a charity? And as Marjorie pointed out this morning, as you just did, this is not the general fund of the Special Olympics. This is the school part of the part. That's number one. Number two, the beauty of this to me is it is a rare bipartisan moment in the most dysfunctional partisan Congress ever. (laughs) Number three, the fact that people are saying that Donald Trump reversed the decision, and by the way, completely cutting the rug out from one yes. under his cabinet people, which is humiliating for her. She can't be too her. happy. Well, you know what she said after he heard it? I'm so glad he went along with, with what my, I was recommending. But this is a really important point, because actually we're going to talk about this Monday on Greater Boston. One of my coworkers said, I guess we'll drop it, right? I said, no. It's like if you rob a bank 
and you're caught and you give the money back, it doesn't mean you didn't rob yeah, a right, bank. Right. The fact that the Trump administration, for now, as you say, the third year in a row, was going to take $17.5 million away from the Special Olympics should not be forgotten just because Donald Trump reversed his position when he was stoned. Okay, okay. Here's what I want to know. I know Betsy DeVos is, is very financially successful, or her husband is, so she's got lots of money. But why do you want to make a fool of yourself over and over, and she's like on the wrong side of everything. No, but she, she what, because of what you just said, she's looking at it as only $17 million. Uh, no, she that is. That may be true, no, actually. No, she is. That may and be. she is saying that is easily gappable, you know, that the by people the private who give, sector. by the private sector. So she's saying. But that's not the point, Emily. I know, but the she point is does, she's, she's not like, a, like you. a national she does, she's not. She doesn't, she doesn't look at it that way. She's looking at it as well, the, 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 education, the, CNN. the education budget is sixty okay. billion dollars. Here's, well, here's another one. Here's another one. Hold on. Here's another one of her brilliant ideas that we all know. Everybody's or not everybody, but lots of people are drowning in student debt, and we also know that there are all these corrupt for-profit schools that make a million promises and then basically defraud the students. Who in their right mind? I know Donald Trump did it himself, and he got fined, you know, twenty-five million dollars for it. So maybe he thinks that's okay. But generally speaking, people don't think that it's good to defraud nineteen-year-olds who are trying to get their license. Well, and Margie, cut. isn't she wholly unqualified to be the education she, secretary? That's in what I'm the saying. I mean, She's kind like, of a laughingstock, and she just keeps doing it. Does she go to parties and have people? Think well of her. I mean, she's. Why do you want to debase and degrade yourself all over the country? I guess that's my question about Betsy DeVos. Can you please answer that question? Why do you want to <laughs> I debase? I can't it? do it. By the way, the Guardian. Thank you, Amanda, one of our coworkers. This is a relevant number. The DeVos family yacht is worth forty million dollars. Yeah, yeah. So there so you go. So seventeen that, million dollars to her is like yeah, especially when she's looking at a sixty-eight billion dollar. Well, I guess you say, Betsy, budget. why don't you go home and enjoy your yacht and stop. <laughs> Debasing. This is a hobby for her. I guess it's a hobby, but it's not really... You know what's an interesting question, though, that really has nothing to do with Trump, is uh, the issue that you're raising, that I, uh, I am into, is the whole issue of self-respect. Exactly. Is, is when you, I don't care if your boss is Donald she Trump or Barack none, Obama. Obviously. If it turns out you were told to go do something. Now, maybe she agreed, maybe she didn't. I don't really care. But the boss, the Trump administration says, go defund uh, the federal part of Special Olympics. Uh, not the whole program. You're right, of course. And defend it publicly and be humiliated for two days about <laughs> it. Uh, 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 and what is the point that a human being, when they're instructed by their boss, particularly, it's one thing if you need the money to do your, uh, you need the job. What is the point at which someone says, my self-respect is such, <laughs> but, but you know I'm what, not going to go on a mission guys, that is so reprehensible. Somebody else might have been able to be convincing on this. What do you she, mean by that? Somebody else would have said, I'll tell you what, this is how it's going to work. And she should have said, here are the people that are all... No, no wait a minute. Listen. Okay. Well, listen. That she, that she, we've got it all lined up. Here's, yep. here's how this is going to work, the funding gap. We're going to apply the money. And then she, she names all the other places. She didn't know how to do it. She was wholly unprepared. She didn't know the question about how many kids was going to come up. That's my point. If she, somebody else might well, have been able to do it. Well, here is the problem for the Trump administration that anybody with a quarter of a brain would say... Well, we've got $17 million for the Olympics that you're taking away. We have just given billions of dollars to millionaires, billionaires, and corporate America. Well, more than a trillion, it's, actually. It's, 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 just, it's, a, it's a problem with everything they try to do. They're going to have the same problem with trying to slash to death the Affordable Care Act and offering these junk uh, proposals. Oh, you don't again, think that's going to work? 
No, I, do. I don't. Not pre-existing conditions. I, I don't I'm think pre-existing conditions is going to work. I hope you guys are right. They're fooled once. I think you guys, I don't know. Well, he, fo- he ran as a populist, as I've said a million times, promised everybody he was going to have better health care. He's going to take this on. He's going to take it on, and I think that the vast majority of people are not so stupid you, as to get fooled you don't, again. You don't think that he'll convince people what he has no. is better? No. You know, by the way, can I, you know, I was just thinking about when I was talking about self-respect, and got us, I just want to say one more thing. It was only a week ago, remember, that his Treasury Department imposed the additional sanctions on North Korea. And the next day he tweets out that he's reversing the yeah. sanctions. And, I mean, and you know he, How well, do you do this? Because he was the original one who put it, who okay. proffered it in the first Emily, place. Here's the problem for him on health care. That once you've given somebody I, something, that's a huge it is point. really difficult I'm to take telling away. You, they're going to be convinced. His followers are going to be convinced that he's going to come up with something. Then better. why did we get the results? And it was Obama. Then why it was Obama? Then and why did we and, get and those the results hate, hate we did Obama. in the 220 election? It was all about 2018. 2018 election. The 2018 election. Why did we get the results we did then? It wasn't Obamacare. It was all about health care. Well, what are you talking healthcare. about? Okay, no. we're talking to Emily Rooney. Marjorie's going to have a stroke, so let's move on here. <laughs> okay. Now, you know what I do? I don't know if I, this is an in-house secret, so I shouldn't say this. At the end of my <laughs> Thursday night show in Greater Boston, I read sort of like Ron Burgundy. and uh, <laughs> I read whatever Emily has written oh, yeah. to tease her show the next night. I don't know, edit it, whatever. And on the whole issue of the, the, uh, the, issue of the uh, infamous videos of Robert Kraft, I thought... The point that you're, I know you're discussing tonight, something about it, correct me if I'm wrong, is whether or not the, the effort by the press to, to contest the effort by Kraft's lawyers to have the evidence, the video evidence suppressed because it was illegally, uh, the subpoena was illegally obtained, they argue, is, may not just be about good journalism, but may be about something else. Was that the point you're making? Yes. No. Okay. You think it's about sensationalism? Jim. You don't think there's a principle here well, of course there is. First about of all, suppressing all right, public let, let's, records? Let's, let's start from the beginning. Okay. There's two videos on two separate days Correct. in January. Uh, one is, well, I'm not going to describe them. Well, but people we know what it is. Yeah. There's two sex, sexual service acts. Yeah. <laughs> Both of them similar but not the same. Right. <clears throat> the lights dim on it. It's not, you, you can't see everything, but apparently, according to the people who have seen the video, it's quite graphic. It's quite specific. Florida has some of the most, unlike Massachusetts, some of the most open record laws in the world. Once you've been charged, everything's open. Right, public record. So they went after, originally, they went after the first filing that the Kraft people went after was about the fact that it was still an open case and the evidence shouldn't be released. When they felt that that was faltering, they went after the second one, which they filed yesterday, saying that the evidence was illegally obtained because they were going after the wrong, that it was a straw man, that there was never an issue of sexual trafficking. They knew that when they went in there. These were women who've been running this business for decades. They're in their mid-40s and 50s, and nobody was being sexual. That's the second. So they're going after that. But the real reason, you know, the media wants this, I mean, they want to see it. And, Jim, if you were, you know, the news director here and... You had Greater Boston. Yeah, I do have would Greater you, Boston. Would you, your, Boston, it's under you? your purview. Let me finish. Oh, sorry. Would you allow you to put the video on the Okay, air? I'm going to answer your question indirectly, and then I will only get to the answer. <laughs> one of the things I admire about you, not everything, by the way, but one of the things I admire about you is you tow the straightest, I think most principled line on what journalists are supposed to do. If something is public record, which it is under state law, whether the state law is too expansive or not, and there's an attempt 
that journalists perceive to be uh, compromising that thing, then it is not only okay, but the obligation of reporters Agreed. to challenge I that. I agree. So totally if, agree. if there's a sensationalistic, if that's the right word, aspect to this as well, I mean, I may not like that, <laughs> but, but if the primary motive, which I don't doubt at all, is this sets a really bad precedent if Kraft's lawyers... I agree with and by you. By the way, oh, you do. So where course, are you disagreeing? No, no, I'm just saying... You're saying that their motive is not well, purely journalistic. Listen, there's a prurient element to this. It's just undeniable. I'll tell you who doesn't it's want to undeniable. see that video. Me. Yeah. Do you really want to see this no. video? I don't think so. Yeah. No. Oh, my God. Tell me how it is. I don't... I really don't. Uh, do you understand, by the way, one of the things we talked about, which is not your topic tonight, I have to say, I don't understand the legal strategy. Neither do I. Here at all. And I'll tell you, a restate, because you may not have heard the other day. Thank you very much. This one could be over. This could be over by now. Uh, what do you mean? Oh, oh. Uh, in light of the fact that it doesn't matter whether they suppress the evidence or not, uh, uh, whether he cuts a deal or not... Everybody knows, and even more so when he was said in his apology the other day, I'm truly sorry, and then goes on, that he did what he's accused of. Uh, it doesn't mean but he didn't say what he was po- sorry right, for. Right, he did. No, I know he didn't, but yeah. I think people know mm-hmm. that, he's, yeah. that it happened. We also know that under NFL rules, the pathetic yes. commissioner, uh, $40 million <laughs> Roger, man, you know. is going to do something yeah. to him. And, oh, yes. and the code of conduct says you don't have to be either convicted or charged. Right. You can do whatever you want. Yes. So, the public relations consequences happened. The NFL thing of some sort Will is going to happen. So why doesn't he just do what we suggested on day one, give a full-throated apology with the details? Jim, and America's I'm a forgiving... This. What's the answer? It's all about <clears throat> the video. If there were no video, he would have done that. It's all about the I agree the with that. And so why can't that whole... be part of the deal? When you cut the deal, when you cut the that's play... That's what he's working on. But, but, he, wait, couldn't, he couldn't... Uh, he couldn't admit it and say all that. They would have just released it. That's what they do in Florida. He couldn't do that. So you That's think that his lawyers are... Conti- uh, by the way, I totally agree it's all about the video. You think, and this is where I guess we have a different opinion, I assume part of the deal that he was offered and rejected where he had to say, had to admit that they would have proven him, there were enough facts to yes. have proven him yes. guilty. You suge- you're suggesting uh, uh, expungement or suppression of the video was not part of the deal, and until it is, he's not going to do it. That is exactly well, right. Well, if you're right, then that does explain it. <laughs> no, if you're right, it does explain yeah. We're talking to uh, Emily Rooney from uh, Beat the Press. <clears throat> okay, Emily. Uh, I understand that you are taking issue oh with my the gosh. media mania over this <laughs> the, the ghost in Victorian clothing in the Market Basket store in Revere. Well, no, not, not in Revere. Revere, not Revere. The picture Wilmington. is in Revere. Wilmington. Yes. Yeah. But the picture uh, that they oh, ran in the Globe is of the Market unhappy. Basket store in Revere. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll don't t- you love a good ghost story, Emily? <laughs> you know, around Halloween, <laughs> you know, this, my neighborhood Isn't is you like re- Ghostbusters. It's really a lot of fun, but. Um, in all seriousness, there's something that really bothers me about this because any serious news organization that picks up something about the supernatural, I mean, there are, there are, there are things that are mysteries and are with, you know, Bermuda Triangle, Roswell, there are things that have gotten serious attention. But sort of embracing something that you know is not true is not a good place for the news media to be yeah. in this stage. And everybody picked it up the New York Post, the New, every, and I don't think the New York Times did, the Globe did. And, and everybody did it with sort of tongue-in-cheek, and it was funny. But this is a woman who works in the bakery department who said, I mean, by the way, all aliens look like, we know that, right? They all have the, That's right. the, you know, the dark eyes and the body and we know what body. happens they come to down, you. What do they do, Marjorie? They beam you up and probe you. And probe all, you. all um, <laughs> ghosts, especially women, look the same. They've got the nightgown and the, and the night lamp. And so, 
I mean, this is, you know, communal, communal reinforcement of these things, but does the media have to get into it? And, and I'm shocked. All she did was put a little thing on Facebook. Facebook was yeah. it because, you know, she's an otherwise credible person who works in a store? And I, I, I was actually stunned that it got picked up this way, even though there was a fair amount of tongue-in-cheek. It, it reinforces a notion that isn't true. Well, but it doesn't... I don't see how it reinforces... I don't understand also how it's different from a lot of the light stories that yeah. are in good oh, no, newspapers. No, no, no. You don't Be- believe because, in ghosts? Because, because most news stories are debunked. If, if, if it's not true, the news media will tell you it's not true. It's not true. Wait, do you think anybody reading the story in the Globe, which I did immediately when I saw the headline, is, is dumb enough to yes. think that there was a ghost? In the, yes. There might have been a ghost in the There's Wilmington There's more than store? one person who says, well, a lot of people saw the same thing. Yeah, of course they did. <laughs> Would mean, you have felt better if there was a paragraph that said uh, the writer, the, whoever wrote the piece spoke to uh, an expert on ghosts and there aren't any? Yeah. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Well, I mean, okay, well, I guess that is the answer. To the, uh, you know, uh, it's just a sort of no-nonsense approach. I mean, it's mm-hmm. one thing to sort of have sort of fun with something, but the fact that, I don't know, 17 or 18 news organizations yeah. around the country... What about the aliens? Up? Should we report on the alien yeah, sightings? Yeah, there you go, yeah. Beamed up and probed? By the way, yeah. for whatever it's worth, you know I don't do the Wilmington store. I do the, every Saturday morning. I do the Somerville uh, Market Basket. Yeah, yeah. What and do you there get was there? a woman in a long gown oh, yeah. in the uh, tomato outfit. sauce department. Did she have the on the day. lamp? And, she did. You know, same yeah, exactly. You saw her too? How tall was she? About this high. About, my about so high. high. Yeah. Yeah. Little bitty thing. We're talking on the <laughs> Okay, enough of this. Uh, she's here, at least in great part, for the following. Okay. Incomprehensible. It's out of control. Well, how about common sense? doesn't matter. Why not? This is the kind of thing that drives people crazy. It's your right. doesn't matter. I have absolutely no interest. You know, we really need a good one today. I hope <laughs> you're not going to dis... Oh, no. Uh, well, I hope it's good. Okay. This started out as a serious thing. Okay. This started out as serious. I was... We're looking at... Um, Ghosts I've Known Facebook and Loved by Emily Rooney. Go ahead. A, you know, they've eliminated... They, 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 used, they banned white supremacy, talk space and all yeah. that, you know. Now they're banning um, separatism and nationalism. And I, so my, my list today is, what's the difference between? I was really trying to figure out what the difference between those three so things were. So was I. I didn't understand really it. virtually no difference. So which wait, is what it starts out seriously and then you start making jokes about no. it? No. Oh. Here's the things, other things that I don't know the difference between. Uh-oh. Well, uh, then we're going to be embarrassed too, apparently. Go ahead. Oh, I had to look them all up. Okay, go ahead. Um, I don't know. I did not know. Now I know because I looked them all up. The difference between a porpoise and a dolphin. I have no idea. One's got a hole in the back of its head and one doesn't? Nah, no. Okay. Dolphins are larger with conical teeth. Oh. What are conical teeth? I don't like know. Like cones, obviously. Oh, the difference okay. between a crocodile and an alligator. That I did know. I don't anymore. Yeah. No well, idea. Uh, no well, idea. Alligator has a U-shaped snout. Crocodile, a V-shaped. Has V-shaped. a V-shaped, yeah. Didn't know. Ooh. Got a half point How about that. this okay. one? Yeah. A husky and a malamute. Uh, no, we don't know. Husky is faster and native to Siberia. Hmm, where's the Malamute from? Malamute is bigger. I don't know where they're from. Okay, I think, they're, I think it's they're... from Revere. <laughs> this ahead. is embarrassed to know. I didn't know the difference between What's this? an emoji and an emoticon. Oh, boy. Do you? <laughs> no, I have I hate no idea. No, I don't know what it is. The first is strictly images, yeah. you know, like happy faces and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And the second is made from the characters. Like the oh, okay. Can I tell you one thing? Before you leave that topic, I've had this discussion, I don't think, with you. I am stunned how many people I, I text with who are major figures in the community 
who use who emojis. tweet me emojis in the middle of like serious I back and forth. I know. It is, and now I'm doing it because I feel I have to be part of what they're doing. <laughs> we should do a whole thing. Well, they pop up. They pop up now. If you, no, if, no, you no. have to click on them well, to like, replace words. They choose affirmatively to add well, like Christmas if tree. You, if, uh, yes, if you say the word love, all of a sudden you get a bunch yeah, heart, of hearts. Yeah. Or if you say Excuse chipmunk, me, I have gotten sudden, more winks I sent you that in the chipmunk. last week <laughs> Ooh, really? from people. No, not wow. like suggested winks. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's surreal. Im- no. Some powerful people. What's the difference, Jim? Can I insert a... What's the difference between... What? What? A donor and a donator. Well, you know, Marjorie embarrassed herself the other day during the pledge drive. I do it every day. By the way, it was donor, donator, and donorator, donorator. she called them. And donorator? And I sugar daddy. Donorator. She said that during the <laughs> These are all good. <laughs> okay, go ahead next. All right. Uh, a shrimp and a prawn. This one I really didn't know. Prawn's bigger. Prawn's smaller. <laughs> Shrimp have claws on two of five pairs of legs. Prawns have claws on three, uh, have legs on three sets of claws. Wow, wow this they is look exactly also, alike. Can't or shrimp the animal? I don't know if they're an animal. Can't they change? Don't they they're change sexes? Don't they? Is shrimp, yeah, I think so. I think they change sexes. Yeah. This is an embarrassing one. Okay, good. Cement and concrete. I have no idea. No. None. None. I, concrete's harder. Softer. <laughs> Heavier. <laughs> Concrete is definitely heavier. It's made from crushed stone. Ooh. This Cement is, is just kind of a, list, a mix of a, some kind of a binder. Okay, go ahead. Next. Um, <laughs> a crow and a raven. Could you tell the difference if one flew by? No. 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 I, I don't well, even know Edgar what a Allen blue jay looks like. Exactly. He did. <laughs> I would say a raven is bigger. The crow has a thinner bill. And a shorter tail. They're identical in size. You have a book in this, by the way. Do you Do know, I? There is a book. A, a, yeah. a Christmas book. Like seal that. and a sea lion. Whiskers, oh, I think I know what that. Sea lion's a lot bigger. A lot bigger. A lot heavier. Than a, than a seal. No? No. It's, it's all about the ears. Seals have ear holes. Oh. No flaps. Sea lions have ear That's flaps. That's a good one. And that is fur. a really good one. And less fur. Wow. That sea now, this one I learned in was fifth grade, but I can never remember. Okay. Oh, what is it? The difference between. <laughs> A stalactite and a stalagmite. Uh, one goes up, one goes down. I know, but which one? I have no idea. <laughs> no one has any idea. The tight hangs down, the mic goes up. Whatever. Have you okay. ever been in one of those places with the stalactites? How cool is that, by yeah, the way? Yeah, I would be scared to death. Have you ever I done that, Emily? Oh, like, yes. Really? Oh, yeah. Where'd I you was do spelunking it? last up, weekend. Up State New I... York. All right, a rabbit and a hare. No. Hare's faster? Tortoise of the hare? Rabbits give birth in a burrow, hares above ground. That is, I know. This is really fascinating, I know. Actually. Is it? How'd you find not this really. out? The yeah, no, I started yeah. looking. No, the issue is not looking it up. The issue is thinking about what are the things you yeah. don't know. That is yeah. what's fascinating here. A kangaroo and a wallaby. Oh, God. One Pockets is a pocket, different. one doesn't. Kangaroo is much larger with long legs and a dull coat. And wallabies are quite small, and they've got these streaky brown coats. Huh. Okay. <laughs> and I had white nationalists. So what's the answer Did to I have that? one? Which one? The white national. I didn't look that up. Well, that, that was because the whole point of this I thing. I know. Well, they're, they're basically saying it's all the same thing. Okay, fine. You know? Well, um, that was excellent. One more? Oh, there's one more? Yeah, absolutely. A possum and an opossum. Oh, my God. 
I know. I, I always know. thought possum was short for opossum. So did I. Actually, <laughs> they were the same thing. What Me are too. They? What's a possum they? lives in Australia, and they have bigger ears. Let That's all I know. You, that was unbelievable. It was that bad. was very instructive. There's a whole show in that, or you a know, book, I, or I'm something. I'm impressed you even thought of that. People are going, what? So, no, but I, just I don't want to be think clear, so. Because we've talked about Facebook yes, uh, in a little while with white supremacy. So everything the same: white supremacy, white nationalism. Basically, so yeah, we're going to be talking about that tonight, among other things. Okay. That basically, they're saying that's all the same thing. They're not going to parse it out. And hey, I've, I've got a guess for you. I'm mean, seriously, this, this guy who has this website out of Canada um, called um, Life After Hate, I listened to an interview he did. He was fascinating. He was a skinhead, a, you know, a white supremacist, a hater. The guy comes on. You should listen to him. And what made him transform? That was, and so the, guy so, like, the reason I bring it up is because Facebook is directing anybody who tries to use hate speech to his website, and then they're going to engage with him. Is blah, that blah, the blah. kid who grew up in the family? He's not a kid. He's not a kid now, but he grew up in a family of yeah, white supremacists, yeah, yes. and he worked for his father's magazine, and then he and I then don't he know changed, about all that, but he, he, he changed his mind, yeah. and his father won't speak to him anymore. Very well-spoken, you know. Yeah, anyway. I think I may have heard this guy. He Tony was great. McAvee. He was great. I, I've got his name. What else are you doing tonight? Oh, so we're doing, of course, the video, the, the Rob Kraft, Bob Kraft video. We're doing um, whether the media deserved the huge, the enormous amount of criticism it received after the Mueller report came out about you know, saying things that weren't true. I, of course, am, am parsing this out, saying there were a lot of pundits who said things that weren't true, but you name me a legitimate news organization that went on and on and on and off base like weapons of mass destruction and said something that yeah. wasn't true. Didn't Margaret who? Sullivan write a great piece yeah, about she this did. in the last yeah. couple of days? Yeah. 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 Matt Taibbi. Yeah, Matt Taibbi. Matt Taibbi. Matt was, though, critical of the media. Yeah, he was one that was very yeah. critical of the media. How about Greenwald, speaking yeah. of yeah, critical Greenwald, yeah. of the uh, Glenn Greenwald. So we're looking at that. We'll be listening, watching, whatever we're doing. All right. We're watching tonight. Thank you, Emily. Okay, Thanks Emily so much. Rooney, I love that list. Do you know, I, no, I don't remember any of the differences, but I'll have to look it up again. Emily Rooney joins one's us every week. One's up and one's down. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> of course, you can keep up with Emily Rooney Friday nights at 7 o'clock right here on WGBH. Two for Beat the Press. Emily, thank you very, very much. Coming up, we were just talking about this with Emily. Facebook decides to ban white nationalists, and people are asking, what took you so long, and what is the difference between all these different groups? Anyway, tech writer Andy Anako joins us for that and much more. He is next on 89.7 WGBH. We are broadcasting live from the Boston Public Library. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is uh, Marjorie Egan. Join us to go over the latest headlines at the intersection of technology, commerce, and policy. Is tech writer Andy Anatko. Andy's a tech writer, blogger, and podcaster. You can follow him at I-H-N-A-T-K-O. Andy Anatko, good to see you. Good to be back. So let's start, Andy Anatko, with all this new stuff that Apple's announced, subscription <laughs> services, etc., yeah, they had a big event that they've been playing up for months. Uh, the invitation said, Showtime, uh, because they've been rumored for years to be trying to build something like Netflix, where they'll have their own original content, and they'll charge a subscription fee for access to that content. They hired two huge executives away from Sony to run, the, uh, run that division. They've been spending $2 billion uh, on hiring really, really impressive people like M. Night Shyamalan, Steven Spielberg, uh, really huge names to build uh, a 
original content. They've been Wasn't buying Oprah rights to books. Part, was Oprah part of this? Or Oprah I was wrong? part of the presentation. Oh, she was. <laughs> wow. Yeah, she, <laughs> it, was, it was so funny. She, they saved her for last. Tim Cook like gave her a hug, and but they, they didn't warn him that Oprah gives off these pheromones that make you start crying. <laughs> and he said, <gasps> and so he actually said, "This is the thank. This I'll remember this for the rest of my life." Oh my God. Yeah. It oh, was, I wish I'd seen By the way, that. I, just, I hate to correct you so early. It's not Tim Cook. It's Tim Apple is his name. <laughs> I just want to be clear. So uh, everything I read about this, I know you're going to go through some of the things that he announced. Every review I read of this, the day after it happened, said there was very little meat on the bones. Not pricing, not yeah. dates. Not, did you share that? It was really frustrating. They, they announced like four or five different things, and almost all of them ended with, well, when is this service going to be available? We can't tell you. How much is it going to cost? Oh. We have no information on that either. Oh. So tell us what a few of the highest profile ones are, though. Okay, so you got Apple TV, which is what, what I mentioned. Uh, we'll probably launch in the fall. Uh, Apple TV Plus. It's I'm not sorry, just Apple, what we Apple all know. Sorry, yeah, Apple yeah. TV Plus. They're using Plus a lot now. Uh, don't know how much it's going to cost, but like St- Steven Spielberg is relaunching Amazing Stories. Uh, the big drama they're doing is a, a, a show called The Morning Show, like behind the scenes at like a Today Show sort of thing with Reese Witherspoon, Jennifer Aniston, and Steve Carell. Uh, big Bird's going to have a show that teaches preschoolers how to code. It's going to be a thing. Uh, the, then they have uh, Apple News Plus. They already have an app called Apple News, which if you have it on your phone right now, you tap it and it will uh, give you a news summary according to categories and it will learn what kind of topics you're interested in. Uh, all they did really was last year they bought this, uh, this magazine service called Texture. And this was a service where it's like Netflix where you get access to a library of 200 uh, regular periodicals that you could then read on the device all you can eat. So all they did with News, news Plus is that they just bolted Texture onto News. Not really very interesting. How about this credit card, though? I, I read a little bit about There is a credit card that's part of this, yes. right? And the thing that appealed to me, and I, don't ask me why, uh, but it did, is the number is not on the card. And I sort of yes. like the fact that I could use a credit card. But then I read what I read about everything is you have to have an Apple Watch, which I, do, I don't use or, Apple products and, ex- other than a computer. So what's the entry point? What do you have to have? You, to you, you only have to have an, uh, have an iPhone. Oh, an iPhone. Which I'm is, sorry, not a watch. Which I'm is, sorry. It's, kind, it's really interesting. You're right. You, the card is a sexy Apple product. It is a card-sized piece of titanium. It is titanium? It is titanium. Well, that's pretty uh, cool, actually. <laughs> with the Apple logo engraved upon it and your name, there is no number on the front. On the back, there is no signature. There is no uh, confirmation code number. Because number one, obviously, I, it doesn't it dri- doesn't drive you nuts when like you pay for something and the cashier will like just leave your charge card like on the top of the keyboard so that everyone can like see well, it. Well, that's what it is that bothers me, of yeah, course. But not but so but not only that, but <laughs> the the card the the, ca- the credit card number which interfaces through Mastercard, so it'll work with any place that takes Mastercard or Apple Pay, is virtual. So if you feel as though, oh, my God, I now, I now realize that that gas station pump has a card skimmer on it, you can actually go to the app, press a button, and it will scramble and give you a brand-new MasterCard number. You can do things like if, uh, if you're buying something on, uh, online from someone who you worry he's a little shifty, maybe, but you kind of trust him, or you really, really, really want this set of tires that he's selling, you can generate a brand new uh, number apart from your regular one, give it to him, and then after the charge goes through, you can delete that number and it doesn't work anymore. Well, by oh, the way, other than, oh. the, other than the limitation, which does bother me for selfish reasons because yeah. I don't have an iPhone, uh, uh, 
it sounds like that's it's good, yeah, actually. No, that's What's yeah, the downside there, there, there are a lot of good, good things. Uh, well, number one, you should really, if you haven't, if, you, if for some reason you haven't downloaded your current credit card's banking app, do it, because... Uh, things like being able to have a virtual credit card number like that, that's a feature of a lot of different cards. They're just uh, pulling in a lot of these really cool things in and of themselves. The only really bad things, as uh, they're, they're sort of uh, philosophical in my end. Number right. one, the, you are tight. You do have to have an iPhone. An Android phone won't work. If you, don't have a, if you have another phone, that won't work. So that's another way of Apple making it really, really hard for you to switch from an iPhone to something you might like better. The other thing is, this is a credit card. And it's really, really easy to sign up. You just tap a button in, this, uh, in, this, uh, in the banking app, and it will do a credit check, but it can give you really, really quick approval. So maybe you, you'll sign up for a card, but some people will sign up for a card they don't really need because they want that really cool titanium, titanium card. Yeah. Uh, and I am an old, old Apple fan. And I'm the, I, I grew up learning about the story about Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs in the garage and Steve Wozniak kind of scamming <laughs> Woz out of some money. Uh, and... <laughs> So it's hard of for course. me to. So it's it. I don't think it's a good look for them to have people, who are their customers, who are making them a lot of money by paying fourteen to twenty five percent interest, on a credit card. Well, Do we have a date on this, by the way, or is this also open? Also, also unknown. Okay. But the, but the, even there, that's a good. But hold on for one second. Did you just say that you could also? Because I think a lot of us, you know, sometimes you get confused about. And you know, on the website, this used to happen to me when you're buying tickets for certain things, <laughs> and you're thinking, are you? Am, is this the, the right website, or is this not the web, right website? And sometimes <laughs> it's really hard to tell. Well, sometimes it is know, really it is hard smart. to tell. Yeah. <laughs> so you have this little moment of fear, thinking I'm getting scammed here. It would be wonderful if you could do that, but you're saying you could do that now with Visa or MasterCard? I did not know that. A lot of individual banks through the phone app will let you do things like that. Like, again, create a, a, burner, a burner Visa number or a burner MasterCard number that is time-delayed or, it's again, it will only work until you decide to delete it. I use that feature a lot on my card when I'm signing up for a, quote, free trial of a yes. service. Oftentimes I'll forget, and then 30 That's days later they've charged me for a whole year. what I was thinking yeah. of, because, because it's very difficult to unsubscribe, of course, as easy as it is <laughs> yep. to subscribe, and then you're looking all day to find out how you get unsubscribed. I, I, I wish I could say that was my, my problem is I just forget. Yeah. <laughs> by the way, Dee, when he mentions a black card with no number, does that bring up back any memories? For you, by the way. A black card with no number? Yeah. It's probably another embarrassing thing. No, it I wasn't did. embarrassing at all. When we were in commercial radio for yeah. a short period of time, we were doing Dunkin' Do- Donuts commercials. Yes. And do you remember one of the <laughs> things we got was we got a black Dunkin' Donuts card That's with right. no number on it? And Marjorie and I acted like we had just won Powerball. And it was like, you know, so you get a free donut or whatever it was. We were so excited. It was unbelievable. So can we move on? Because the sure. topic that's on your list today is something I've actually wanted to ask you about for weeks and have forgotten repeatedly, is the president and uh, Twitter. Uh, uh, the commander in tweet, as we called him <laughs> this morning. There are a couple of issues that I've never quite understood. One, I never understood. I believe we looked it up this morning. Uh, the president has blocked seven people. At least. One, I don't know, understand how the president of the United States uh, can block someone from his Twitter account since there is public pronouncements. That's one. Two, I read, I don't know what the definition is. I read about the community standards that exist in, on Twitter, and every once in a while you read about somebody getting expelled or shut down or whatever. It seems to me, I, again, not knowing what the language is, and you'll fill me in, that when, when uh, uh, the president calls uh, Amoroso Manigault a dog, when he trashes John McCain, 
when he says Hillary Clinton should go to jail. Mm -hmm. It would seem to me if I tweeted those things, or worse, he's done, I might get shut down. I've never heard any, well, I actually now have, rumors about him being shut down. So one, does he have the right to block people? And two, do the community standards that apply to the three of us not apply to him because he's the President of the United States? I can more easily answer the second question first. Go ahead. Uh, Twitter is, has long held that no, the same standards don't apply to Trump or other politicians strictly from the point of view that it's newsworthy and people have a right to know. If, you, if the president, I'm just, I'm just sky, uh, blue skying here, if this person has gone off his, off his tree and is tweeting about how he intends to destroy every, every block of pavement between here and Greenland, that's something that, instead of saying, gosh, that violates community standards, we should take that down. It's like, no, we should leave that up so people can see that this is going, this is going bad. Um, I thought that, so, they're will, uh, that they were contemplating, I had read, yeah. some disclaimer, if that's the proper yeah, terminology. Yeah, they, they have been considering what to do about this for a while. Uh, Twitter's head of legal policy, trust, and safety was on a panel uh, that the Washington Post was running earlier this week, and he was talking about this a bit. He was saying that one of the things they're considering is allowing this sort of these for these politicians to allow the tweet that violates community standards to stay up, but add context saying we this violates community standards. This is not uh, this is not what the normal community is doing. However, we are allowing this to be posted because it is newsworthy and because there's a public right to know. You know, one of the I, I have no uh, legal expertise here, but one of the things I read, maybe in something you wrote, but I read something uh, in the last 24 hours about the first issue I read to you about the ability of the president to block somebody, and the argument uh, by those who are being blocked is you can't do that. These are public pronouncements right. of the president of the United States. The Justice Department is defending him in these in this uh, <laughs> yep. litigation and saying, I think you wrote this, saying that he's doing this as a private citizen. And the response to that from whoever I read, again, it may have been you, yeah. is if he's doing it as a private citizen, why is the United States Justice Department, <laughs> his lawyers, yeah. as a private citizen? We don't have an answer to that yet, correct? And, and it's, it's funnier than that because it wasn't me saying this. It was the judge, the appellate judge. Oh, is that so? Who was oh, hearing that's arguments. great. He got, he, got sued that's by, great. he got sued by the seven people whom he had blocked. He, well, he's blocked more than that, but seven, oh, seven I didn't know that. got okay. together and decided to sue. And the judge that last year decided that, yes, you're absolutely right. There's a First Amendment issue. Not only is it, you're, you're doing this publicly, you're the president, but also by blocking this person, it not only prevents that person from seeing your tweet, it prevents them from replying to it. So there's a First Amendment issue where people are not allowed to get their, uh, to have their, uh, their pronouncements challenged in public. So the judge said, nope, you can't do that. Uh, of course, there was an appeal, and now the Department of Justice is <laughs> Trump's lawyer, uh, and it's not going very well. Uh, let's get to this whole issue with white nationalism and Facebook. We were just talking with Emily Rooney about what the difference is between white supremacy, white nationalism, and white separatism. I have no idea. <laughs> but they started, apparently, at Facebook going after white supremacy, and now they've expanded to white nationalism and white separatism. Tell us about this. Yeah, they, they used to make a distinction between those, th those three things. They thought that white supremacists are people who are in, uh, either uh, committing violence and inciting violence, and so it doesn't matter what they're saying, they need to shut down. They were keeping, they were keeping an eye on but allowing white nationalism speech and white separatism speech because they felt as though this First was just... First Amendment stuff. Yeah, and that, and that to, to be fair, I, I, I'm, I'm not in love with Facebook, but to be fair, this is the line that all these services have to cross, where you have to allow speech that is terrible, that is offensive, or else there's no, no, no point to the service. But they, they say that they've had some time over the past year particularly in the past couple of weeks since, uh, uh, since the violence in New Zealand, 
uh, and have been convinced by human rights groups that really these three topics are so intermingled that you really can't separate them. And so now basically anything that's a, anyone or any group that's identified or with uh, white nationalism or white separatism speech is also just simply violation of policy removed and opens you to having your account deleted. Let me ask you a uh, uh, stupid question. H how, how many people does it take to monitor this kind of things, and what exactly do they do? There's software that is supposed to do things algorithmically. Keywords kinds of things? Keywords, uh, there's a lot of AI going on there, but there's a lot of human beings who have to have the, un the totally thankless job of having to read this stuff time and time and time again. And when you consider that, images of extreme and illegal violence are also against policy. Oftentimes, the algorithm sends this image to this person's desk and saying, you have to, is this good or is this not good? It's a horrible job. I would never want to do that. Um, and the, when it's a, they had an issue this week, as a matter of fact, where right after Facebook made this announcement, uh, Business Insider decided, well, let's see what Alex Jones is putting on Instagram. Alex Jones from InfoWars, he's already been booted off of Facebook, yeah. but he's still on Instagram. And they found this anti-Semitic painting. Oh, yes, that was yeah. gruesome. Yeah, this basically, your basic, like, big hook-nosed bankers around a Monopoly table with the bodies of the oppressed people holding up the Monopoly table and all these mystic... It was really horrible. Uh, but it's hard for an algorithm to detect that unless a human has flagged that, kind of, that image as this is anti-Semitic. So Business Insider basically said, hey, they've still got this up, and they also alerted Facebook, which caused a whole bunch of teams to decide what they have to do about this. And uh, they got a hold of the email thread. Maybe Facebook leaked it to them directly under the table to basically get some, to, to, to tell people what they're dealing with here. Uh, and it's a lot of passionate people inside Facebook saying, no, look, uh, the, first, the first team said, well, this technically doesn't violate in, uh, Instagram guidelines, so we have to let it up. Whereas uh, uh, some people in the European office said, no, wait, wait, th that's nuts. This is clearly, here are all the hate groups that are associated with this image. You can't leave this up. So it wound up being 20 like, large executives. The only, the, the funny and kind of tragic part of it is they, they looked into seeing if they could label Alex Jones as, they have this term called a hate figure internally where if this person has been proven to be a hate figure by internal standards, doesn't matter what he does, you can ban him, you can delete his account, you can also prevent people from talking about him. So they, they did an audit of his uh, Instagram. They found that of 560 comments he posted, only 23 of them violated terms of service, uh, and that's 4%, and whatever the threshold is for being a hate figure, 4% is not at that threshold. What is the threshold for being a hate figure? I've heard the term. What does it mean? Who knows? Whatever they oh, decide basic, it means? Or? Basically, it means that uh, we no longer have to go piece by piece by piece to see if the things you're posting are okay, okay or not. We're basically saying that I don't care if you post a picture of your dog's birthday with a cute little hat on, we decide that you're a hate figure, which means that we don't want you on our service. You're just nothing but trouble. We're talking to Andy Anatko. Can I bring up another Facebook issue here? Talk about pot and kettle. <laughs> the Department of... I'll read the first paragraph from a story in yesterday's New York Times. The Department of Housing and Urban Development, Ben Carson's operation, sued Facebook on Thursday, for, yesterday, for engaging in housing discrimination by allowing advertisers to restrict who is able to see ads on the platform based on characteristics like race, religion, and national origin. I want your, your reaction to this, but before I do, the reason I mention what I mentioned, you know, one of the first things we all learned about Donald Trump, uh, I learned it thanks to that brilliant documentary that 
uh, Frontline puts out every year during the elections, the two hours on each of the major candidates' choice, I think it's called. And we learned that the Roy Cohn connection with Trump and his father was uh, in defending housing discrimination suits when they were discriminating against blacks, and that's where Cohn taught Donald Trump, which he's elevated to an art form, is you repeat something that's untrue enough times and boldly enough, and it becomes the truth in the mind. But again, guilty of, clearly guilty of housing discrimination. Remember in that front line, he lost. He literally was ruled against in a housing discrimination case, and he and Cohn go yeah. out to the sidewalk Lie. and say they, won. they just won. Yeah. The case. I mean, it's so Trumpian. In any case, his uh, HUD people are suing if, I mean, I'm no fan of Ben Carson's, but if what they're alleging is true that Facebook is doing, good for them. Is it or is it yeah. not? No, I, I would say good for them and long overdue. Uh, Facebook, if you, if you uh, look at Facebook as a potential advertiser and look at what they tell you as a potential advertiser, one of the things they're really proud of is that they have algorithms that look at every scrap of information they have about ev all of its users, uh -huh. and they can, they can infer a, a huge amount of data about those people. So, and so they tell the advertisers, if you want to target your ad towards cantaloupe and bowlers who are left-handed, lactose intolerant, have bought a house from the past five years, but also have an apartment on the side, okay. they can target... <laughs> You know, or people who are, who might like chocolate, they can target that. So they used the, the, this. The, they started getting in trouble about this in 2016, where advertisers uh, who are doing uh, job postings or rental units or or, or credit uh, stuff uh, or uh, housing uh, could specifically exclude <laughs> groups of people including uh, people of certain races, people who have disabilities, mm -hmm. uh, people of certain ages, uh, and they, they, they call this an ethnic affinity, the category of, uh, of markers. And like I said, it's been going on for a long time. In 2016, ProPublica really raised us think about this. Uh, they raised another, <laughs> and, they, and they promised to do something about it. Uh, in 2017, Sheryl Sandberg, the chief operations officer, came up again. She said, oh, well, we've already fixed this. We've already made it, uh, removed the ability for advertisers to do this. And so ProPublica said, well, tell you what, that's, she's all, she said they've done this. Three, it's three days later. Let's try to buy an ad that, that excludes uh, African-Americans, mothers of high school kids, people interested in wheelchair ramps, Jews, expats from Argentina, and Spanish speakers, and Facebook approved every single That's ad. Fabulous. Oh, my gosh. Last, just last week, they were forced to pay a $5 million settlement <laughs> to five different organizations, uh, to settle five different housing discrimination disputes that were filed between uh, 2016 and 2018. And at that time, last week, they said, okay, well, we're going to create a whole new a sub-portal for people who want to advertise, again, credit stuff, loan stuff, job stuff, so that none of these features are available to them to begin with. So that's why they think that this, uh, <laughs> this HUD uh, charge came as a surprise to them because they thought they were working with HUD uh, and they offer a lame excuse. We only excuse. have a minute left, but it, it, talking about Facebook in general and representations that either Sandberg or Zuckerberg makes that are proven within minutes or days to be totally untrue. This may be an incredibly naive question. Do they know when they when Sandberg said what she said, did she know that was untrue? When Zuckerberg talks about what he's done on the privacy front that turns out not to be true a couple of days ago, does he know it's not true? When he says, I am almost with a laugh, I'm totally confident Facebook <laughs> had no role in outcomes of elections in black... Do they know these things are not true? And they've decided, sort of in Trumpian fashion, you can say whatever you want because you have the biggest uh, megaphone, 
and get away with it, or do they just learn after the fact that their operation is so big that what they thought was true was not? With Zuckerberg, I wouldn't make a guess one way or another. With Sandberg, I could easily believe that she is the chief operations officer, which means that she really isn't in the trenches. That uh -huh. at some point, someone she she asked for a report from somebody, she got a briefing from somebody, and I believe I would believe that her understanding was that this had already been done, without taking a second to well, I've got a computer in front of me right now, I'm the CEO, oh, I've got access, I'm going to see what happens. Uh, and, of course, she didn't, but ProPublica did, and that resulted in another really bad PR shoot in the foot, stepping on a rink. Andy, it's great to see you. Thank you, as always. It's been a good year so far for Facebook. Uh, we, should make this a, we, should, we should make this a regular segment with, like, theme music and everything. Yeah, I guess so. Andy, thank you so much. Thanks, Andy Inako. Uh, Andy Inako is a tech writer, blogger, and podcaster. You can follow him at Inako. I'm going to spell it for you. It's I-H-N-A-T-K-O. And he joins us all the time. Thank you very much, Andy, for Thanks. being here. Coming up, Stacey Abrams says, no thanks. Oh, excuse me. She says thanks before she said no thanks. She said thanks, and then she said no thanks to Joe Biden. Callie Crossley joins us for that and more next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Marjorie. We're live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Joining us as she does every Friday is the host of Under the Radar with Kelly Crossley. That would be Kelly Crossley. Hello, Kelly Crossley. Uh, hello, hello, Jim. Hello. 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 Marjorie. <laughs> nice to see you as always. Yes. So, um, as I said before, Stacey Abrams, thanks to Joe Biden and then no thanks to Joe Biden. Yeah. Um, what was this all about? Um, well, apparently, according to Yahoo News, um, some sources, people close to Biden, they're not putting it on the Biden camp itself, so maybe that's just letting them off the hook. They floated an idea that if he announced um, that he would, you know, announce her as his running mate. And it's like, I'm, I don't, I don't, you don't run for second place. It, I, it's not that I would be averse to being a, a vice presidential uh, candidate. However, let's see who the nominee is, which is something she's been saying all along. I want to you know, see who's going to end up being the nominee. And I would imagine that she probably deeply resented somebody just floating her out there and, you know, sh without her approval or even having indicated that that may be who she would sign up with. That was, as, as the article made clear, for the total benefit of the Biden campaign and had nothing, she had nothing to gain from it. So, I mean, if you're going to do that, give her something to... I, I couldn't agree too. more. And yeah. I think part of the reason, uh, we've discussed this a few times, I hope people don't think we're overdoing it, but the, Biden himself gave a response that we're going to play for you that I think was totally uh, tin-eared, mm -hmm. is his role as the chair of the yeah. Judiciary Committee during the Anita Hill hearings. Yeah. We discussed it as recently as yesterday. I hadn't heard everything he said, so I want to play what he said. Mm -hmm. And I think it's in part his vulnerability because of this that caused him to say, you know, Stacey Abrams, a powerful, high-profile African-American woman, would be just the ticket, sort of insulation for me in some ways, I think. Mm -hmm. In any case, here's Biden in New York City earlier this week on Tuesday, I think, saying Anita Hill, quote, paid a terrible price during the uh, Clarence Thomas hearing because the committee was made up of, to quote him, a bunch of white guys. We knew a lot less about the extent of harassment back then, over 30 years ago. But she paid a terrible price. She was abused through the hearing. She was taken advantage of. 
Her reputation was attacked. I wish I could have done something. I opposed Clarence Thomas' nomination. I voted against him. But I also realized there was a real and perceived problem the committee faced. There were a bunch of white guys. By the way, the reason I, uh, I wanted to bring this up again today with you, Kelly, because we did discuss this yesterday, I hadn't heard every word he had said. I wish I could have done, done something. something. He huh? was the chair of the Judiciary Committee who single-handedly decided to not allow corroborating witnesses That's who right. would have basically said corroborating would have made the case that what Anita Hill was alleging about Clarence Thomas was not a one-and-done, but was a as a typical conduct right. for this man. How serious a problem do you think, unless oh, think confronted directly problem. for Joe Biden, is this? I think that's a big problem. I mean, we've discussed this before. I think that um, he's going to have to answer a lot of that stuff, particularly in a, in a crowded field where there are presumably some other viable candidates. You know, it's funny because maybe if there weren't as many people, he can maybe sort of mush around on some of that stuff. But because there are a lot of people in the field who are being called to account, as they should, by, you know, where they stood in the past, um, he's going to have to do the same thing. And by the way, if people have not read Jane Mayer and oh, Jill Abramson's, Abramson's book, terrific, which detail everything that went on behind the Anita Hill hearings, yep. you will be open-mouthed, as I was, because there was so much going on that is just outrageous. So for him to say that, I wish I could have done something, somebody goes back to look at that book and start pulling out stuff. I mean, it's really going to be bad. You know? the by the way, it's called Strange Justice, Thank the you. selling of Clarence Thomas by the great Jane Mayer from New Yorker and obviously Jill Abramson, right. and formerly the, time, of the New York Times. At the time that the hearings were going on, we had no idea that there were None. these other women right. waiting in no. the wings. Three, was it? Three, is it? I, I yes. believe there was, there was one. One of them, they turned around. She didn't even get to come in town. And yeah. That's right. Yeah. And, and, she, and one of them had been ill and yes. said she'd get up out of her, out of her sick bed to yep. come testify. And, and one, I think, had been... Uh, Kept had in, a, a in a hotel in, room, just sitting there. You know. and had a run-in with Thomas herself. <laughs> yeah, the other right. ones were... Right. And talked about yeah. how she talked about this at the time. It happened and so forth and so on. I, I will never get over those hearings. That was one of the... I, I remember I got to actually cover them. I remember sitting wow. on the floor in the yeah. back and, and thinking to myself, this woman has got so much dignity yeah. to put up with these weirdo questions yeah. um, from these guys. And, um, and she's had a wonderful career post this. Can I yeah. say... I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Can I say one no, more I'm thing about this? Yeah, is, is, you mentioned... I'm so glad you mentioned that book, mm -hmm. the mayor, and mayor has always done these brilliant things on mm -hmm. dark money yeah. and all this other well, stuff. Well, went on to do stuff about Clarence Thomas. Well, I want to mention this. Right. She wrote a piece for, uh, uh, for New York Which Magazine. She? Which uh, I'm sorry, Jill Abramson. Uh -huh. I had her on last year when mm -hmm. she did it. Uh, uh, called Do You Believe Her Now? Mm. And it was, it was the case, her ca argument, it was the case for impeachment of Clarence Thomas. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it was not purely a, a you should read it, I would recommend, yeah. a re-examination of what you two were talking mm -hmm. about, about prior to the Clarence mm -hmm. Thomas hearings. It was, a re it was a telling for the first time of similar behavior by Thomas yes. as a justice right. on the Supreme Court. I think that's the woman right. was from Alaska. Uh, right. Yes, and there, she was at a dinner party, and yeah. um, he uh, touched her rear end mm. and made inappropriate remarks and mm. wanted her to sit next to him so that mm -hmm. he could, you know, 
put his thigh against her thigh or whatever. This is when he was a sitting justice. Did I say, yeah. by the way, the name of the piece is called Do You Believe Her Now? was uh, uh, the case for impeachment of well, Clarence Thomas. I just want people to read the book and see all the other machinations going on behind, which had to, which were only allowed to take place because of the people who were in place on that committee. That's all I'm going to say. All white men. That's I, 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 yeah, is that I, not right? I, I, no. Yes, uh, but, but, you know, that was a makeup of the Senate. It, to me, was just more shocking about all the kind of stuff that you could do behind the scenes that we, the public, had no idea about. You know, here's another <coughs> argument for term limits, too. Orrin Hatch was on the original Anita Hill uh, yes. hearings, and he was also on the Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh hearings. Yeah. And the fact that he didn't try to learn anything about right. the dynamics of sexual harassment, that he still was so ignorant, frankly, when Kavanaugh came around. It's another example, it's another argument for term limits. I mean, apparently, you know, a senator like Orrin Hatch feels so entitled that he doesn't need to educate himself about these issues. Or chooses not to. Or chooses not to. You know, can I revisit something? I'm sorry to do this, too. Getting all worked up here. Well, last week we discussed with you, Callie, speaking of Clarence Mm -hmm. Thomas, one of the most frightening dissents I've read, I've heard about in ages, the dissent in a case Clarence Thomas uh, wrote uh, and Neil Gorsuch joined him in this, uh, saying that uh, the uh, Gideon versus Wainwright yeah. case in the 60s, which established the constitutional right to have a lawyer provided for you if you can't afford one in a case where you may lose your liberty in state or federal court, I hadn't read his dissent. I actually read it, which I rarely do because these things are headache kinds mm-hmm. of things. This is one of the scariest things. Mm-hmm. This is an argument. Clarence Thomas argues with... Uh, in addition to Neil Gorsuch, and by the way, I included Samuel Alito in that. I was wrong last week. Well, Alito, Justice Alito, joined the dissent. He did not join this portion of it that mm-hmm. suggested that Gideon versus Wainwright should be uh, overturned. He makes the case outright that even if you were facing the death penalty. That's right. The death penalty. That is correct. The only thing the Sixth Amendment guarantees is you can get a volunteer lawyer, that's what he says the language means, mm-hmm. or you can pay for a lawyer, but you are not, not entitled to the provision of a lawyer. So if you're low income, middle class, can't afford a lawyer, facing the death penalty, Too bad according for you. to Thomas and Gorsuch, yeah. the Constitution does not guarantee you a right to... I and mean, I, that is so radical, it is unbelievable. And, I, and as I said, I don't know Neil Gorsuch's background, but I know Clarence Thomas's. He wouldn't have been able to get a lawyer. Exactly right. Exactly <laughs> you know, right. So, you should think about that, you know? No. <laughs> it, he's a very odd character. I, I just don't that, understand. Benefited from affirmative action. I'm glad you affirmative can use action. That. I can't use Gr- language I want to use. Well, and he grew up, <laughs> I mean, poor, I, you know, Let after you say. mentioned that, I didn't know about how he grew up in Georgia oh, yeah. until you mentioned it last week. Yeah. I read about that, too. Yeah. About in a one-room shack that with dirt floors, right. no yeah. running water. That's right. I mean, this is a guy who theoretically should understand what poor people face firsthand. That's what his sister said at the hearing. <laughs> I mean, I, she was there. <laughs> like, hello, have you forgotten? Hello. <laughs> you know. Okay, let's go on. This is an outgrowth of the uh, college scandal where yeah. uh, parents were paying uh, coaches, bribing them to let kids in to, you know, on the water polo team and they didn't know how to play water polo, <laughs> etc. Uh, now, apparently, these wealthy parents have hired PR experts. Yeah. Crisis um, manager. Yes. Crisis management. Um, apparently, some of the students knew exactly what their parents were doing, according to the story in the Washington Post. And prosecutors say some did not. But then, of course, uh, kids that are getting out of these uh, great 
Ivy League schools or USC or UCLA, wherever they're getting out of, uh, they can't get a job because they're, when they Google, the employer Googles their name, it comes up that they get in there because somebody gave them seven hours to take the SATs or something. Yeah. So um, I don't know what to make about this. I guess if they didn't do anything wrong, I, I do feel bad for them. I think a lot of people will read this and say, um, you know, they had the money to get to get by their way in, and they're having the money to buy their way out. That's how it's going to look. And there are some. I think there was one student that came forward and said he didn't know right immediately after the first story yeah. came up. Um, actually, it's a very interesting article about this guy Judah Engelmeyer, president of Herald PR, who I guess has been representing a lot of these families. And as um, he said. Um, he has a general sense that most of them had some sense something wasn't quite right, even if they didn't know the details. Um, and his thing is, you know, you have to come clean. And his job is just to, to make, not to erase the information, but to push it as far down as possible in any search engine. Yeah. So that, you know, people, as in his words, would get to know the kids themselves who were tainted by the parents' action. Um, they didn't do the action, presumably, uh, but they were tainted by the parents' action, and then maybe they have a chance to make an argument on their own. I don't want to but be uncharitable know. at yeah. all because I'm in a charitable mood, but as you've said before, Marjorie, if you get a scholarship to play water polo at USC and you can't swim, I think the kid <laughs> probably knows that maybe yeah. there was well, a those, mistake yeah. somewhere yeah. along yeah. the line. But I can see where the yeah. ones that paid the SAT proctors right. to cheat they, on they their would, kids' behalf, yeah. it's possible that they thought they were going to wind up with you know, a middling 500, and, right. and they get out of there, they got a 750. They go, wow. How about, I, wait, wait, uh, yeah. maybe in that case. And if you get uh, double the time for uh, whatever reason, because you of some... Qualify. I think you should Well, you should probably know that when all of your other friends have X number of hours and you have twice as many, mm. that there may be a question you should ask somebody. Would you not agree? You would, you would think that, but yeah, maybe but some <laughs> kids think that they're entitled to that because they have Let me just say some, this. Let me say this. So, so we're talking about the uber wealthy here and, and what kids may or may not know. Just your regular kids these days, let me just say, are the, they used to call them helicopter parents. I don't know what else they're calling them now. Snowplow parents okay. is the new so, term. So a lot of kids have no idea how much effort parents are putting into making the way for them on the smallest things. This blew up into a huge thing. So you can see how that could just... You know, get to yeah, a but point Kelly, where my mother, I was a single mother, only child. She went, she did go out of her way. I think it's safe. I'm, I feel fairly confident in saying she did not commit a number of felonies. Well, to get me <laughs> I can say that about my that I am today. Okay, I fine. can say that about my parents <laughs> as well. You know, Kelly, in a couple of minutes, we're going to talk to our listeners about a pretty provocative piece Joan Vanaki wrote mm. in the Boston Globe. Mm-hmm. Uh, how can white people walk the walk against everyday racism? I'll just read the first paragraph. Stop me if you've heard this story before, writes Joan. Sandra Fen- uh, Sandra Fenwick, the CEO of Boston Children's Hospital, who's white, by the way, was waiting for a car after a recent board meeting for seasons. Waiting alongside her was a hospital board member who was African-American. That's when another man walked up and tried to hand his car keys to the board member thinking he was the valet. And then she goes on to talk about her question. Is, you know, what do you do in situations mm-hmm. 
uh, uh, like this. I mean, I, I assume we're not talking about where there is an intentional overt yeah. uh, 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 decision on one's part to engage in a racist act. We're talking about things like this, I'm assuming. Unconscious per- bias. Exactly. Yeah. What's mm-hmm. your answer to her question? Because we're going to ask listeners about this in a minute. Well, I think that, you know, she goes on to say what, that what, what Fenwick did was to, was to say, even before her, her board member could say anything, I'm sorry, he's not the valet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of liken her response to the woman that was sitting in the Starbucks cafe when the two yeah. men were accosted and the, I, the woman's minding her own business, drinking her coffee, said, wait a minute, I've been sitting here the whole time. You never said a thing to me. Stop it. So, you know, there are intervention points when you can see something else, when you can say something or, or choose not to. We've all been in those situations, perhaps in different ways. It's often tougher for people when it's a racial situation. They just feel very uncomfortable or they feel embarrassed, you know, because it happened in front of them. They don't, they feel quite not, don't know quite what to do. Joan's point is that you need to be intentional in your response if it's something that you don't agree with. Don't just be silent about it. That, you know, the AIDS people said at best, silence equals death in a different way. Um, and it can be strategic, so, too, particularly if it's not absolutely. a conscious, intentional right. uh, act. You know, this it's reminded me... It's a great question, me, so, though. It's a great oh, it question a, because I'm embarrassed to say I've heard things in my life and I didn't stand up and say something, and I should Well, how about when that person doing it is a relative? For exactly. Talked, our right. fathers exactly. were not exactly mm. men of the 21st century. No, no. And they said occasional things that totally crossed the well, line. Well, I, yeah. can, I can enter into that discussion and having family members coming from the other way yeah. and having to say to them, hold up, you know, my sister and I, and dad, we don't want to hear that. We're not hearing that. Mm-hmm. That's not, you know, and, whoa, you, you haven't lived. Well, okay, but we lived a difference, and we're not, that's not where we're going here. And we don't want to hear it in front of our niece and nephew. We don't want to hear it. Uh, you know, I had to speak to my nephew when he was in college about uh, some music that was playing that had some interesting language in it. And he was the only uh, person of color in the scenario. And I said to him, I realize you don't feel like holding up the banner all the time, but by your saying nothing, all the other kids think it's okay. And it wasn't okay for me to hear it last night, and it shouldn't be okay for you. And so I'm, you're going to have to say something. You know, one, yeah, just one you know, last thing. Are you thing. talking about, I'm just curious, are you talking about uh, uh, N-word or yes, misogyny? Yes, yes, okay. yes, yes, yes. Okay. And I said, you cannot be, you know, yeah. and just say to me, because his first, his initial response to me was, well, I didn't pick the music. Oh, no, 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 but you're there. You yeah. know, you're there. So you're going to have to say something, you know? And, yeah. Uh, so you know, when I read the Joan's story, it, is hard, it doesn't yeah. perfectly fit. One yeah. of the funniest bits, I love Wanda Sykes, but I think she's a genius. Oh, my yeah. God. She's in Curb Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> and there's this scene where there's not a white guy who's a bystander. Larry David goes out to the parking lot, and he wants, uh, he, he, and he has to have somebody get his keys. And Wanda Sykes, if you don't know Wanda yeah. Sykes, she's an African-American, brilliant comedian. And he hands her the keys. <laughs> she didn't need any help. I mean, <laughs> this woman dropped a series of F-bombs oh, in the funniest way hysterical. on Larry David <laughs> that it was just unbelievable. You know, before you tell us what you're doing on, uh, on uh, Sunday night, and again, we're going to discuss the topic we just discussed mm-hmm. with Callie, with you all, in a minute uh, on the phone. You know, I was thinking a lot about this the last couple of days, and I, I thought that, you, I don't know if you've thought about this, either of you. You know what we need in a presidential candidate? What? We need somebody who is, I don't know, who oh, maybe God. has sold 
10 million copies oh, of God. her autobiography, one of the best-selling autobiographies in the history of the world. What do you think about that? Oh, oh actually, that's Michelle Obama. Right. 10 million copies. That's right. It's one of the biggest autobiographies in history in the UK. I know. Forget in the United States. Look at the smile on your face. Well, no, no, I'm right. What, no, what I think is interesting is the only other book they could compare it to was Anne Frank. I know. That's exactly right. <laughs> the Lifetime of Selling Anne Frank. Okay. 35 <laughs> million. Yeah. So what do you think it is about the, is it, what do you think it is about the, because we've talked about this before, that has gotten this to be such oh, a I, massive. I, it's absolutely the, the way in which she, you know, is, is, talks about her, her life and her story. And it's, it's, it's just really, it draws you in. It's genuine. It's very, it's, it seems, I mean, if, yeah. if it's not, she's doing a good job. Yeah, it's genuine. You know, but it's, you know. but it's, it, I, when I was reading this, and I've read it a while ago now, it was going to help my mood at the end of the day. Yeah. I felt like if I was having a difficult day, oh, I'll read a couple of chapters of her book. And there was just something uplifting about it, maybe because you like her so much. Well, I, I, you know, people are picking up the book who are not necessarily, you know, huge fans, but just curious. I think because she is so clear about where she is, Jim, like not running for office. Yeah. Um, she's really clear about who she wants to be, and she's very clear about looking back on this particular unicorn experience of being the first lady and then being in that position and what it left her with. And contrasting that with how she was raised and, you know, what some of the foundational values that she was able to carry with her, pass on to her kids, what that means. Because her know. parents were great, right. too. And, that was the other and, thing. Right. And being married to a guy who was, you know, admittedly just otherworldly right. in many ways, um, whether you like his politics or not. It's, it's fascinating. What I think is going to be interesting is that I can't believe that he can come close to her with his book. So well, that's interesting. So, no. so let's talk no. about that. No. Um, and when she married him, he had the best-selling book in Dreams of My Father. In fact, she was on the campaign trail using that as fodder to talk about student loans, saying mm-hmm. the only way we were able to pay off our student loans is that Barack wrote a best-selling book. She said that's not a plan for everybody else. You know? Am I not <laughs> right that they didn't finish paying off their law school loans until they're in the White House? I think, so. I think because of the book. Because of the book. <laughs> okay. yeah. I'm telling you. So what yeah. are you doing yeah. uh, um, next week? I'll bring her up. Well, again. it's interesting what that, you that you're talking about the, the, Joan, the Joan Vanaki column because. Because we're spending the whole hour um, looking at uh, the research and some of the interesting, powerful anecdotes from Dr. Deborah Plummer's book, Some of My Friends Are, the uh, Daunting Challenges and Untapped Benefits of Cross-Racial Relationships. We have Dr. Plummer herself and some folks who have been engaged in long-term relationships, others in the back end of the show who are seeking to create that space to have conversations. What, what does it take? What is the energy that you, you, you put into it if you, if you want to? What are the great benefits from it? Um, Dr. Plummer sees this in a, in a broader way. The one-on-one relationship building, she believes, will lead to a larger communal understanding. Some people may disagree with that, but she's, uh, the book is very good, and she's a fascinating presenter. And the people who are ordinary folks who have been involved in this are great to hear from. So, Callie Crossley. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good to see you, Kelly. Callie Crossy joins us every week. Uh, she's the host of Under the Radar which, with, with Callie Crossy, which you can catch every Sunday night. She was just speaking about it at 6 o'clock right here on WGBH. Uh, she is also featured tonight on Beat the Press at 7 o'clock and Basic Black at 7.30. And you can follow her at Callie Crossy. Is that correct, Callie Crossy? Okay, at Callie Crossy. Uh, thank you very much, Callie Crossy. See you, Kelly. So... 
so coming up, um, we're going to talk about the, uh, the Joe Renaki column that we just discussed with Callie. When it comes to racism, um, we're doing okay on the symbolic front, but what about those everyday encounters when we hear things, racial uh, slurs, homophobic slurs, when we open the lines and ask you what's the best way to deal with it and have you dealt with it? Listen to 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio Live from the Boston Public Library. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Bradley and Marjorie Egan live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. In the latest move to rid Boston of its racist past, I assume you read the MBTA just announced it will change the name of Yawkey Station to Lansdowne. So we're making inroads here on the symbolic front. What about everyday racism? How are white people doing on that front? We just discussed with Callie Crossley, Joan Bonacchi's column. If you just tune in, I'll repeat. She opens with a story of Sandra Fenwick, who's the CEO of Boston Children's Hospital, who's white. She's waiting for her car after a board meeting at the Four Seasons around the corner from here, where there was a hospital board member who was African-American. And that's when another person walks up and tries to hand his car keys to that board member, thinking he was the valet. Fenwick, as Kelly said, intercepted and told the man he was not the valet. We'll open up the lines and ask you, what would you have done in such a circumstance? 877-301-8970. When you, act, when you are witness to acts of racism, how do you deal with it? Or do you deal with it? And at what point is responding to an act of racism become racist in its own right? What if someone isn't being treated a certain way because of his race, but you assume that they are? On and on. 877-301-8970. It's really, it's, it's pretty important question because you do see it. And again, we're excluding people who are consciously and intentionally being racist. We're talking about people who are unconscious acts. Like the, I'm making the assumption the person didn't walk up to the board member of Children's Hospital intention, intending to hand a board member keys to his car, sort of uh, Larry David and uh, uh, the thing, Wanda Sykes that I described before. You know, in a similar vein, you know what this reminded me of when I read Joan's column? I mentioned this this morning. There was one of the worst stories ever. Barack Obama was a uh, young state senator right. in, I think it was 2003, and he's in a cocktail party, and uh, he's had some prominence at that point. I'm not sure if it was after he gave the keynote at the convention before. here. It was before. He's at a cocktail party, and somebody walks over to him. He's one of the few people of color at this cocktail party, and asks young Barack Obama, I think five years before he becomes president of the United States, uh, to get him a drink, to fetch him a drink, I think was the uh, explanation. The point being, it's all around us, and how does one deal with it? Not how does one. How would you deal with it? How you, have you dealt with these kinds of situations when you have been confronted with them. So how have you? Uh, sometimes not as courageously as I'd like. And I th I'd like to think in defense of myself when I'm not as direct. I think Fenwick did the exact right thing, by the way. I don't know her, but uh, the CEO of yeah. Children's Hospital, the exact right thing. Uh, uh, I think in my defense, which is a feeble defense, is when I've seen it and bid with someone who's a person of color, I have decided on the spot, maybe to protect myself from having to act, I hope that's not it, that I didn't want to embarrass the person who was embarrassed or insulted already. So you pretended by you me. didn't see it. Yeah, I did. Yeah. And, I'm not, and when situations like that are over almost every time, in fact, every time I question myself and say, 
was that out of cowardice on my own part that I didn't act, and I, I fear that it may be part of that. But I, I would like to think that more often than not, I think this is a fair analysis of how I've lived my life, I have said something, not in an attacking way, but sort of a la Fenwick, but on a number of occasions, I haven't, and I'm not proud of it. 877-301-8970. It does give you an opportunity. You know, it's sort of that think, I hate that line, think globally, act locally. This is a situation, rather than giving grand speeches about racism in our society, yeah. these are the circumstances where individuals actually have an opportunity to make a difference, and we should make use of those opportunities. But I think there's also a lot of situations, because I, I don't think I've ever been in a situation like this, but I have oh, been I in have. situations where there will be white people who will say something racist about black people, whether, oh, you know how that kid, you know, you know how that black kid get into the oh, college. Oh, without a person of color there, yes. you mean. You know, you know how that kid get into that college because, you know, he's a black kid, that's how he get into the college, or make some, uh, you know, you know how so-and-so got the job because so-and-so is a black kid. Well, that there, there's no excuse for not saying there's something. There's no excuse, but, but sometimes when it's been in a family situation, I have it's chickened harder. out. I have chickened out. I've left. You know, so, well, you know, and then I've given a speech to my kids in the car, but I, you know, I didn't, I didn't confront, um, the, I can think of a couple of times when I should have said something and I didn't. But there way, I, I, the, there's got to be a strategy. It's sort of how do you deal with it? I mean, Fenwick, if this reporting is accurate, which I assume it is, didn't use your verb confront. She said, excuse me, he is not right. the car guy. He's not the valet. I mean, you can do it in a way that is not crushing but rather correcting. You know, yeah. you know what I mean? So, yeah. in any case, 877-301-8970. Uh, let's go to Michael in Providence. You're first on Boston Public Radio. Hey there. Hey, good afternoon. Hi. So uh, every time I've challenged someone on something racist that they said, they back it up with the great family that they come from. It has never gone well. What, is, what does what that do mean? What do you mean? Uh, they don't even address what it is, what the topic is. So if they use racist language and I challenge them on it, they start talking about the great family that they come from. Well, it's you know, like can I tell you something, Michael? This is not my area of expertise, but I think I would respond to what you said by saying it doesn't have to go well. It has to go. And my assumption is if I did something like that unconsciously and you said something to me and I tried to escape because I was humiliated... Uh, you know, by saying, well, I have a good family or some of my best friends, et cetera, et cetera. I think that stays with you anyway. So my advice to you, not that you ask for it, is keep saying it. And if you don't get the reaction you want, so what? You've done the right thing. And I would like to think that you've done, engaged in some corrective behavior. So thanks for the call. Well, you know, it's interesting. If you do say something to someone, uh, they remember it. Because they don't do it. That's why my point exactly now. <laughs> they won't do it around you again. They do it as soon as you leave the room or go to the bathroom, but they won't do it in front of you anymore. So that's a helpful thing to do in a family situation where you hear that kind of thing to say. Or, or the other thing you can say, which is a very convenient one, hey, uh, I don't want my children to hear this. I, I didn't raise my children this way. I think that's good. I don't want my children to hear this. That, that can, that can uh, usually work uh, pretty well. And then people won't do it in front of your kids, and they talk about you behind your back as, again, as soon as you leave to get together. Let's go to Kathleen in Cambridge. You are next on Boston Public 